Okay, sounds uh, good. I just want to say I'm really glad to have you on. It's, uh, it's been a long time planning. I know I was busy yeah. a couple of last times and I apologize for that. And I'll say, but that's I'm, life, right? It happens. I guess it does. And right now we're here and yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's an honor to have you on. Yeah, it's an honor to be on. Thank yeah, you for having so, me. Yeah, so you are a host, uh, what's, what's, what's the word? Holistic nutritionist. Holistic nutritionist. Yeah. What exactly is that? So, a nutritionist, Okay. in essence, the holistic to it, that has a certain, a certain meaning. So when holistic is put in there, what they're referring to is an all-encompassing approach to health. So an all-encompassing approach to health goes a lot deeper than just nutrients. So it looks in-depth at the science of it, which is what I've studied mostly, uh, the bio, biochemistry vitamins, minerals, and uh, macro and micronutrients, right? And the, what comprises the human body, what makes the human body healthy. So there's all that, but then it also spans out and it looks at what about other elements of lifestyles that affect health and wellness, mental health and well-being, happiness and things like that. So lifestyle factors, right? And exercise habits, things like that, right? So like how much do you walk? What do you spend your day doing? Right? What, are, what habits? Do you do things that are bad for your dopamine? Right? Do, you, do you seek a lot of, of pleasure sources and you have a lot of uh, you know, negative sort of habits uh, mm -hmm. if you do them too much, right? Yeah. Or do you do a lot of healthy things? You get a lot of fresh air, exercise, and there's a lot of debate in there about what is healthy and what isn't, right? And what's the best type of way to live your life, right? So that's the, the holistic is looking at body, mind, spirit. Right? It's looking at what makes the body work, but also what makes the mind work, what makes whatever the essence is of a spirit, if there is one, look at that and see you know, what sort of links there is there. Some of it is a little more less science-based, right? And so I don't in some ways want to associate myself with things that aren't rooted in fact. But I also really enjoy looking at it because science, right, and what we can look at as fact is only what's been discovered at this point in time, right? And an interesting thing within science is how often through history there will be a claim that's made that there's just, this is an irrefutable fact for something, and then new evidence comes to light later that shows actually we had a, we didn't see all the angles of it, right? We didn't see these other sort of avenues or maybe these things that affected this pathway, what have you. Mm -hmm. There's numerous examples. Um, uh -huh. yeah. Now let me ask you this. Mental health is a really big uh, topic right now. Mm -hmm. In my generation um, or any other generation, mental health is a very big thing. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think are the main causes for the, this negative mental health that we are seeing in especially younger, the younger generation? Well, what would you say... Uh, it's like now, right? So I'm 29. Um, I'm not really too keyed into Gen Z, I guess I could say. So what would you say are the main issues that sort of plague people in your age groups these days? Well, a lot of things I've been hearing from school is social media, social media, social media. Right. Um, I don't know how true that is. Uh, I haven't done any research in it. But that's that's what I've been hearing, and I just want to see if 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 there are other links to to this mental health decline. Yeah, so I mean that's a that's an interesting white one, right? We can clearly see that 
today, kids, I mean, whoever's born today, whoever was born in the last 10 years, probably had an iPhone, a phone, a computer by the time they could read, right? By the time they were at all cognizant, so what, three years old, four years old, when you really started to come into the world in any capacity, they probably have it then, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't maybe have as much time to explore their imagination or what have you, or maybe there's just too much stimulation. I don't really, I don't want to get too deep into that maybe in some angles, but like something interesting I was thinking about the other day is that when you look at brain waves, right, we have alpha, beta, and theta, and delta brain waves. And so alpha and beta waves are basically when you're an adult and you're awake, that's all that we experience, right? So us right now, we should be having beta brain waves because we're alert, we're awake, and our eyes are open. If our eyes were closed and we were alert, then we should be emitting alpha brain waves. But then if we look at theta and delta, in adults, we only experience them when we're sleeping. But kids also experience them when they're awake. Only young kids. Kids will have them when they're sleeping, but also when they're awake. So then what do those brain waves do exactly? I don't have any fact to back it up, but if you think about what happens when we sleep, we dream, right? We right. have this crazy imagination and dreams of things that happen that sometimes are just incredulous, right? And kids are known for being dreamers and imaginers and having great wide imaginations, right? right. So if maybe there is a link there, and I'm not saying there is per se, because I can't back it up with any facts or science, but it makes me wonder, right? Kids are, by all accounts of observation, a lot more programmable, right? They don't have any programming yet, so whatever you give them at that age, they're more uh, inclined to stick to, right? And another interesting point on that, I would say, is like childhood PTSD, right? So if you look at PTSD as a whole and then you look at childhood PTSD, you can take the same individual and something that would give them PTSD as a child wouldn't give them PTSD as an adult. Because when you're a kid, you don't have any defenses. You right. basically are a blank slate, right? right? So the imprinting is magnified heavily, right? So yeah, what is that doing to kids when we give them hyperstimulation at a young age, right? I would say my generation is the first generation that started to see that. Being a 90s kid, that was kind of the start of when video game consoles started to sort of evolve, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they started in the 80s, but, you know, Atari and stuff like that. But, like, my generation started with, like, N64, moved up from there, right? So we had technology, but it was, like, a little bit delayed compared to today. So I can only really look at it in terms of my generation. And what I can see from that is it definitely seems to have started to erode. I want to be careful with my wording. I don't know how to, uh, how to explain it in a way that might make sense on the first take. Maybe I won't speak further on that. Okay. Right? I mean, what do you think about where I was going with that? Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. These big social media companies, um, their goal is to try to keep you on the app as long as possible. Yeah, for sure. That generates the money, that generates... You know, a lot more things than money, um, a lot of controversial things where um, people say they sell that information to China that has a database on every single person, and that's, for some to say that might be true, for others, no, but yeah. what we can't deny is that these companies 
are made specifically to keep us on the app for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. um, back then when you're talking about uh, video games in the 90s, they were made to be interesting, but they weren't made as dragging in as social media is. Yeah, they were, they were essentially made for enjoyment. And somewhere along the line, entertainment switched to being like giving consumers enjoyment to profit. Right? We see that now with gaming, with the microtransactions. Right? Everything's so monetized. From social media, video games, everything today is heavily monetized, right? And so there's mm -hmm. this greed that's kind of taken over seemingly every industry. And within the medical industry, for sure, we see greed heavily taking over and leading us down a bad path, right? Yeah. If we look at the average health of people today, it's getting worse, right? So there's two ways to look at this. And I've had debates with doctors where they look at this and they say, well, well, life expectancy is longer than ever. And that is a fact. So based on that, if we go off that data, it means that people are healthier than they've ever been. But what's the quality of that life, right? Mm. The day in, day out, what does it look like for that person reaching 90 years old? Where for the last 30 years of their life, they're averaging like six to eight medications a day. A lot of them, it's getting worse. It's getting to that point. You know, it's common now that people in their 70s and up have one or more comorbidities, right? They have some kind of severe health condition. And that's not how it used to be. If we study blue zones, right? And I think about my own Oma and my part of my family is from a uh, German uh, farming village in the Ukraine that was mm -hmm. sacked by Bolshevik communists during World War II. It's a very tragic story. But the way that they lived was very similar to blue zones, and I'll get into that, but so a lot of farming, right? Orchards, working with your hands, working out in the yeah. sun, fresh air, and exposing your immune system to dirt and toxins, well, not toxins, but bacteria and viruses in the environment, right? And allowing your immune system to actually react to the environment and develop, right? And so those relatives of mine that I knew growing up were some of the healthiest, most fit old people I've ever seen. My Oma was doing push-ups well into her 80s. She had a heart attack when she was 86. Mm -hmm. uh, lived a couple years after that. They put her on a bunch of medications and after the medications, her heart health really started to decline. But before the heart attack, she was still walking to the store like 10 blocks this way, 10 blocks back, carrying bags of groceries. She could do 10 push-ups. She was outside gardening every day. She grew up as a farmer, survived being a refugee, made it to Canada and continued to work hard through her life and stay active and you know eat modestly and so through that I see a lot of similarities to blue zones and so through all of these examples like if we look at the blue zones we can see there seems to be some clear ways to live that can make you live a long healthy spry life in mind and body where you're cognitively sharp into old age and you're also mobile into old age right so there's four blue zones in the world that are identified. Uh, one is Okinawa. Interestingly, that's the one that's at ocean level. The other three are in the mountains. And Sorry, and what are, what are blue zones? Oh, yes. Yeah. So blue zones are areas in the world where a, a, a large amount of the population lives to be centenarians and super centenarians, 100 or 110 years old and older, right? So there's four regions. 
and all of them share similar characteristics. The mountainous regions are, one is in like Argentina or Chile, one is somewhere near Turkey. I can't remember where the third one is. I can't remember the names of them either, but they're pretty easy to find if you were to Google them. Mm -hmm. And Okinawa, of course. And even Okinawa being sort of different, being that it was more of a seafood diet and being more at, at ground level, they all sort of exhibited similar characteristics in that they worked outside, they lived in smaller communities, they farmed, they breathed fresh air with very minimal toxins in the environment, right? And we really under undervalue or underestimate the, the danger of toxins that we actually inhale and absorb. People tend to live through our lives day to day and not really think about that too much, what we put on our skins and what we breathe. And we do absorb a lot through those pathways, a lot more than we mm -hmm. think. Even laundry detergents, chemicals in laundry detergents will seep in and over years that can cause deleterious effects to your endocrine system and whatnot. And so, yeah, it, it really seems simple, like to live to be old, you expose your, your body to the environment, dirt, and you build your immune system, you stay active, you breathe fresh, clean air. And they all, the mountain regions, they all also ate twice a day and bigger meals, only twice a day and bigger, complete meals. So they, that seems to maybe have something to do with it, but that then we're getting into a whole other uh, conversation about diets. And that's a fascinating avenue talking about ketosis and fasting, intermittent fasting, elongated fasting for autophagy. And I want to get into all that because that is Let's do it. Yeah, really I, powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, in this modern world, in contrast to those blue zones, I mean, everything is completely reversed. Right. The way that we live, we are surrounded by toxins from the moment we're born. Actually, us in in the developed world. In this generation, we literally are all born from mothers that have toxins that they pass to us in utero. That's a fact. There's one type of toxin called dioxins, and dioxins are a runoff from industrial pollutant smokestacks. Oh. And that pollution, dioxins, it lands in fields and where CAFOs are that are near industrial plants, anywhere that there is in America, what have you. Mm -hmm. The cows and the, the chickens and everything will eat it, they'll eat the grass, they'll absorb the dioxins and dioxins bioaccumulate. So cows can't get rid of them, chickens, pigs can't get rid of them, so then when we eat the meat, we absorb it. And then humans can't get rid of it either. The only known method to, to get rid of it is in females giving it to the fetus, right? Well, so that'll actually happen. When you have a fetus, you'll pass everything that you have, if you have high concentrations of mercury and lead, you'll pass equivalent proportions of that to the baby, right? Everything that constitutes what you are, some of that gets passed in. And everybody has a toxic burden and it's getting bigger. It's getting to a degree that we can clearly see a health epidemic forming that by maybe 2040, Really, there already is a health epidemic, but if I was to say when it, when it could get to the level that I might deem catastrophic, 2040, 2050 looks reasonable, unless things change drastically, right? But they're not going to change drastically because we have a medical system that needs to be overhauled. We have a medical system with MDs that aren't taught about genetics very much at all. They're not taught about nutrition much at all. They're taught about drugs, right? They're taught about things like splints and broken bones, which is good. They're taught about many things that are beneficial. But on a deeper but, level, 
on a deeper level when it comes to nutrition and the composition of the human body, they don't know that. They only know how the human body responds to drugs, right? Because drugs can be patented, but nutrients can't be patented. The only thing that can be patented with nutrients is the dosage and the delivery mechanism. So when you see any sort of patents on natural compounds, that patent is for dosages that have been found to be clinically sufficient and delivery mechanisms like specific, like making it liposomal, like making something water-soluble, fat-soluble so it stays in the body longer. That's a good example of it. So, you know, if they can't make money off it, it's clear that in the Western world there's not going to be any push to go with sort of a traditional approach with what should you eat and what supplements should you take, right? Yeah. Really, we're seeing actually a pretty terrifying situation where in adverse to it getting better, it's getting worse. Like we can see right now down in the States, there's a war on peptides where the FDA is looking to ban peptides. And peptides are short-chain amino acids, right? They're not drugs. They're, there's peptides like ibutamorin, for example, which is a uh, growth hormone secretagogue. So it, it, you take it and it stimulates your body to release more growth hormone, mm -hmm. which bodybuilders take to make themselves bigger, right? It enlarges everything. It'll, it's kind of dangerous if you use it supplementally because it can enlarge your organs as well, not just your muscles. Uh, you see Joe Rogan's a good example. He's been accused of using HGH because if you look at pictures of him 20 years ago, you can see his facial shape and he had a lot less bone mass in his jaw. And now he has a very rounded, thick jaw. That is indicative of HGH use. I'm not saying he has used it. I can't say for sure. But it's, I know a lot of people who have used it. I haven't used HGH, but I have experimented with steroids. I've studied them extensively. And uh, I can talk about those extensively if you'd like to get into that as well. Because it's a fascinating subject and used appropriately, steroids actually can be beneficial. But there's a lot of nuance to go into. That is itself a rather large conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you can see here we're kind of getting all over the yeah, place yeah, yeah. already. Good. Right? Yeah. So... I suppose, yeah, back to just to finish the health crisis epidemic, I mean, if we look at statistics, right, you can look from the 80s to now for various conditions from Alzheimer's to dementia, cancer, diabetes, autism rates, Are depression and anxiety, significantly higher than they were. they've skyrocketed. Yeah. All of those things I listed and more have skyrocketed to astronomical levels compared to the averages in the population just 40 years ago. It's scary. And at this projected rate, we only have a couple more decades before it comes to a point where the average population will be unable to work. Literally, where the median average population will be so sick and laden with toxins and have such deficient bodily systems that they will be unable to work on disability for whatever condition that they've developed. Autoimmune conditions, skyrocketing, right? So it's really scary. And what we need to see is a huge boost in the funding and the support for naturopathic preventative medicine. Right? Because Western medicine, though it is great for many things, it is treatment medicine. And at that, it oftentimes does not really look at what the best treatments are, but what can curb side effects and maybe give other side effects. Exactly. And then keep them on a pill for a long time. It ends up being band aid fixes instead of actual fixes. 
because you're not looking at what the body's actually like what makes it function, right? Yeah. Like we can think about a, a drug, for example, like proton pump inhibitors that are often um, prescribed for people with acid reflux. But proton pump inhibitors, often when people have acid reflux, they actually have low hydrochloric acid production. And because of that, the mechanical function of the stomach is overworking. And it's causing the little hydrochloric acid that there is to kind of spew up into the throat. That's a, that's a frequent cause. I see. So when you take these proton pump inhibitors, they lower your hydrochloric acid even more than it already is, and they cause drastic long-term effects. They dry out your, the, the pumps, the proton pumps in your stomach that secrete hydrochloric acid. They, they can wreck them. It's like there's many anecdotal cases of people that have taken pro, proton pump inhibitors and made their condition worse, come off them, and they've had a super inactive stomach for a long period of time that's hard to get firing again. So sometimes these drugs cause issues when you can really look at a very simple fix. I mean, you know what the best way to produce hydrochloric acid is? It's to chew. That's it. The body has a mechanism designed into it where when you chew your food, it sends a signal to the stomach to start pumping out hydrochloric acid. So thoroughly chewing your food is the first and best step, always, in every single person's case, to have a more active stomach. And interestingly to that point, in, in my practice as a, as a registered holistic nutritionist, so we do something called case studies. And basically in the school that I went to, they taught us to do uh, these, these lifestyle assessment forms and, and NSP forms. They, they're a bunch of scores for symptoms that you rank and you tally basically the deficiency in body systems. The most frequent thing that starts every condition is underactive stomach. So when we see somebody has dysbiosis, uh, IBS symptoms, irritable bowel syndrome, right, which is very common today, underactive stomach is usually at the base of that, often with different issues with uh, hormones as well, adrenal glands. It, it, it's very varied, but it starts with the digestion, right? Everything, it makes sense when you think about it. Our bodies are made of nutrients, of macro and micronutrients, so to have a healthy body, the number one thing that you really have to have is good digestion, right? And so the stomach is the first line of that. The stomach is where everything gets burned down in a super right. acidic environment before it moves into the duodenum and that and goes alkaline and starts going through the process, right? But in the stomach, you break down the amino acids, pepsinogen, which is secreted from hydrochloric acid, and that all mulches the food, right? But that really starts with chewing. And so there's a real epidemic with that of people, because of the food that we eat being super processed, that people don't chew much. And oftentimes people almost just swallow their food. And it's also very common to have liquid foods, right? Shakes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's really not good. This is actually, there's a very interesting point about protein shakes right? Which I drink protein shakes as well. But when you drink liquid calories, you have to be cognizant to actually chew, like pretend to chew or chew gum or do something to stimulate that action that's going to send the signal to the stomach to produce hydrochloric acid. Because otherwise, if you have a protein shake, right, milk or water or whatever, but you get all those amino acids, it can be the best quality ever. But if you just chug it back and swallow it, you will not stimulate the stomach to secrete hydrochloric acid 
And if the stomach doesn't secrete hydrochloric acid, it won't then secrete pepsinogen, which is what starts to digest amino acids and get them ready for the next step in the small intestine as it moves down the chain. So you're doing a big disservice to yourself, so, right? Sorry, so if it's, a, if it's a liquid shake, does liquid shakes need digestion? Or is it only... Yeah, well, everything needs digestion, right? Everything that you put in your stomach... Uh, so we got to look at how, th how are things absorbed, right? So if we look first at carbs, carbs will be digested quickly. Sugars will be digested in about 20 minutes. Uh, complex carbs can take longer, but usually not longer than an hour. Fiber slows it down, fiber content changes that. But when you add fats and, and proteins, that is drastically reduced. So think about this. If you eat an apple that apple would be digested in about 30 minutes on an empty stomach, we're talking okay, okay, here, right? Okay. And then let's say if right after that you eat some chicken wings or a steak or something, you eat some meat, you eat something with a lot of protein and fat, whatever it is, then now that you have that protein and those uh, fats, proteins and fats, it'll take about three to four hours, right? Because those sugars from the apple can't move on into the small intestine until everything else in the stomach is ready to move on. And so proteins and fats have different windows, right? Proteins are like four hours, fats like four to six hours to emulsify and be ready to move on. So you then, this is a really interesting uh, segue, is that you then frequently what we see is we'll, you'll have sugars ferment in the stomach because they're sitting there waiting for hours for the proteins and the fats to digest. And in that time of them fermenting, you get uh, this yeast-like mold called candida albicans that starts to feast and procreate, right? And candida albicans is a yeast-like mold that is present in everybody's gut biome. That gut biome is, is your bacterial uh, culture mm -hmm. in everybody's, everybody has one, right? And so that, the gut biome is really important, by the way. That's, that's actually maybe the most important thing for health they're finding is what your bacteria are doing to digest food and keep you healthy. Bacteria produce a lot of nutrients if you have a healthy biome. Mm -hmm. And uh, bad uh, colonies of, of bad bacteria will produce toxins like candida albicans. When it gets out of control, it proliferates. And so candida is, is really nasty. Like you ever play Halo? No, but okay. Not really. Do you know the flood in Halo? Do you know the, the parasitic space species? Okay, well, for anybody listening, if you do know the flood, Candida albicans acts very similarly to it. So I'll explain it to you because you're not familiar with okay, the flood, yes. right? And so Candida has multiple different forms that it can exist in, from like a single-celled entity to a hive mind chained together. There's, I think, 12 different forms that they've seen that candida can go into. And so candida, I compare it to the flood because with the flood you have these spore forms that are the, the base entity that infects other sentient species, okay. organisms, and these little spores, they're tiny, they're, sing they're single organisms, and they have tentacles. And so the way that they infect people is they jump on you and they shove a tentacle in and they connect it to your, your spinal column 
basically into your nerves and they take over through there. That's not exactly what candida does, but what's similar is that the first form of it, it has tentacles like that. And what it does is it slashes other healthy cells in your gut and it kills them as if a spear, it lacerates like intestinal cells, like intestinal border cells in your digestive tract. It lacerates them with its spear, spills their guts out, kills them. And over time, candida overgrowth becomes a major causative factor in leaky gut, right? And leaky gut is always present with IBS. If you have IBS symptoms, you have le leaky gut. And it could be caused by a myriad of things, not necessarily always candida, but candida is a very common uh, condition that exists in people with IBS and maybe even without it because candida feeds on sugar, right? And so we eat a lot of sugar in the Western world and specifically when you eat sugar and then you eat fats and proteins, you give candida the time that it needs to ferment and procreate eating those sugars and using those sugars as fuel to procreate itself. So instead of you actually getting the energy from that sugar and turning it into nutrition for you, you have a negative yeast-like mold forming a colony in your gut that's using it as food. And instead of giving you energy, that candida is shitting out toxins that your body has to handle, like formaldehyde and ethyl alcohol. There's a okay. myriad of toxins that candida itself excretes and it only eats off sugar or yeah okay yeah so the more sugar you eat the more toxins you have yeah so if you do have an overgrowth of candida the fastest way to kill it is straight up to just go into ketosis just go just into ketosis for two weeks no sugar no carbs at all just starve it out but that can be dangerous and uh, that sort of plays into detox what is healthy detox right and so detox itself, it needs to be done harmoniously, right? If you were to do, okay, so I'm going to segue here to, uh, to juice fasts here, right? Juice fasts are a common way to do like okay. a fast yeah. detox, yeah. right? So a problem that you'll see in that instance, if you're somebody who say had a couple bad months, you ate a lot of bad food and you're, you're down bad, you got, a, you got a big toxic burden, you feel like shit your symptoms are maybe at their worst and you're like, I'm gonna do a one week juice cleanse. Okay. You can actually do something that's called detox, uh, uh, detox retox, right? And so if you're in a really unhealthy state and this would all be, you'd have to get testing done on an individual level, right? To find out, you'd have to get blood work done and maybe gut biome testing done and, and various testings that, that are available to really know your, your situation. To, you'd have to get testing done to see basically the state of your organs and the way that they're, uh, they're basically filtering things. Mm -hmm. So namely the, the liver and the kidneys would be major excretion organs. So you need to see if your liver is congested. You need to see if your colon is compacted, right? If you have a lot of mucosal buildup in the colon, then you're not gonna be able to excrete food, right? If your liver is congested and backed up, your glutathione, glutathione is an antioxidant produced in the liver, and it's a major antioxidant that's present in all cells in the body. It's, it's very important, it's depleted rapidly from toxin exposure, drinking, smoking, things like that. And so if you have low glutathione and you have low liver function, maybe your, your bile ducts are a little backed up, you won't really, detoxify properly right so you can start to pull things out of body tissues you can start to pull toxins out of deep tissue gradients and if your elimination pathways are clogged in any way 
they will bound off essentially and instead of actually getting flushed out of the urine or feces they can get bound up in those clogged pathways and spur back into circulation spur back into the blood and you can cause issues with that so the body's really good at storing toxins where they'll do the least damage but if you start to play with them and you can't eliminate them, you've now put them into circulation, you've pulled them out of maybe a safer place inside of like an adipose fat cell, for example, would be a good one. And you put it into the bloodstream where now it can travel to any part of the body and depending on what that chemical is, what that toxin is and what that reacts with, you know, it could be billions of different things that happen. When you consider since the Industrial Revolution, there's over a million different chemicals that are in circulation. And how many of them have we done testing on? Not many to see what they do to human health, right? Yeah. It's, there's very few. There's things like dioxins and phthalates and, and microplastics and things like that, PFAs. And there's some things that we have looked at, but there's over a million and growing, right? So a lot of those bioaccumulate. A lot of those are endocrine toxins. I heard something crazy where a week, in a week we eat one credit card worth of microplastics. Yeah, I've seen statistics like that. I don't know if it's that true. Okay. It could be, honestly. The way that the food system is going, it's getting very unhealthy. So actually one of the big things that I wanted to talk about is is that deficiency, is, is nutrient deficiency on a grand scale. And so, okay, if we look through nutrients, right, we have macronutrients and micronutrients, right? So people are very keyed in to proteins, fats, carbohydrates, fiber. You have some questions about sugar here we'll get into. And then the macronutrients to varying degrees people know, everybody knows calcium for the bones, right? Everybody knows vitamin D for the bones the teeth, right? But so when we break that down further and look at it, the real, one of the key roots uh, that is causing this sort of epidemic health crisis is a lack of minerals. Mm -hmm. And with that, too many heavy metals, right? Heavy metal toxicity is getting really common for certain heavy metals like lead and mercury those two have gotten very, very prevalent in society, right? And so that's important with the mineral balance because heavy metals react with minerals like zinc. For example, zinc and cadmium have a relationship where if you have cadmium, a heavy metal, it'll okay. bully zinc out because it's heavier, it's denser, it'll bully zinc out. Another good example is uh, lead with calcium. So lead it travels along the same pathways as calcium. And so what does calcium do in the body? For the most part, it makes the bones and teeth. It does have other functions in the blood uh, as sort of electrolyte, it can cross the blood-brain barrier. And so that's an interesting one because then it allows lead to cross the blood-brain barrier. And when lead gets into the brain, it lowers IQ. And actually 10% oh, wow. of all cases of mental retardation are considered to be caused by chronic lead toxicity. And mental retardation is a, an IQ of 85 or below, right? So I see. lead, chronic lead toxicity is is estimated to, on average, drop IQ by about 10 points. And it's in almost everybody today. When I, I've had two lead uh, or heavy metal toxicity tests done at a naturopathic doctor, and I am very high in lead, 
And I've been told that every single test my naturopathic doctor has ever done has come back very high in lead. And the way the tests are done is you do, you take a pee sample uh, in a normal day, like a, it's called a pre-provocation pee sample. Mm. And then you take a chelating agent. Chelator is basically a Latin word for, uh, you think of it as like a, uh, a bouncer that takes an unwanted guest out of a club. Chelator okay. it latches onto something and it yeah. carries it out of the body, right? So you take this powerful sulfuric-based chelator and then you, it pulls heavy metals out of the deep tissue gradients and then they test that pee. So they give you the results of both of your pee, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to show, because so I've done it twice and this is normal. It'll show your normal pee is not secreting much of anything. It'll say lead, mercury, that was a normal. You got a little bit, not much. Uh, okay. And that is because heavy metals don't really get excreted easily, right? They're bully molecules, they bully out your minerals and they take seed in your body and cause damage, right? My, my post-provocation samples, both tests, I tested wicked high for lead and mercury. Very concerning. Very, very, very concerning, right? Because if you look at what lead and mercury do, so lead, for one thing, I've already said, it lowers IQ, right. causes 10% right. of mental retardation, lowers IQ by a median average of 10 points. But the other thing, is it takes the spot of calcium in the bones. So in the bone oh, matrix, okay. it'll swap out calcium ions so it makes the bones denser, but more brittle. Because the bones, bone structure is not meant to be made with lead, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So mercury is, an, is another very, very concerning one. It is considered the uh, second most toxic uh, neurotoxin uh, behind uranium. <laughs> And it sits in your uh, hypothalamus brand, uh, gland in your brain. That's what it likes to do. There's many tissues it can sit in. But what, what, what does that gland do? That is the crown seed of your endocrine system, essentially. So you have all these glands through your body, right? You have your hypothalamus, you have your pituitary, you have your thymus, your thyroid, your okay. adrenals. You have all these different glands that secrete different hormones and have various functions, right? And so the hypothalamus is kind of, it's, yeah, it's got many functions that regulate other glands, so it's mm -hmm. kind of considered like the, the crown seat of the endocrine system. And that area of the brain is where mercury likes to sit, likes to sneak into the brain and sit there. And what mercury has been shown to do is what hasn't it been shown to do. It'll give you depression, it'll give you anxiety, it'll make you physically weaker, it'll make you physically slower, it'll make your reaction time worse. It could give you tremors, it could give you paranoid delusions. Mad Hatter Syndrome, right? You can look it up on Wikipedia, what does is, what is chronic toxicity of lead and mercury do? It's staggering. Do we at all produce lead and mercury? Or no. does that come? No. So how, 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 how do we get inside our bodies? Food? Yeah, Water. so lead is a much more explainable one. Essentially, lead was used in uh, car fuel until the 80s, right? So up until the mid-80s when it was banned, leaded gasoline was banned. Mm -hmm. uh, there was lead particulate, aerosolized lead particulate being sprayed, sprayed out in the exhaust of all vehicles, everything, right? Okay. And so that lands in the fields, it gets in the water supply, in the okay. soil, leaches through, uh, we breathe it in, we get it on our skin, right? Um, it's still used lead in jet fuel today, so every time a plane flies overhead, there's aerosolized lead particulate spraying down from that plane. Other than that, lead has been used in countless 
industrial appliances, objects, it's, I mean, bullets and lead lures for fishing come to mind quickly. Uh, there used to be lead toys back with the uh, boomers and, and maybe early Gen X, right? Uh, before they realized the toxicity issues of lead. So lead is, is just very prevalent. It's had a lot of exposure in our society, and at this point it's gotten very contaminated into the water, into the soil, and into the tissues of everybody, so we pass it out in utero, and we drink it. Water is a, is a varying source. Tap water is an interesting uh, debate, right? So tap water, a lot of people around here will say we have some of the best tap water in the world, right? So isn't it safe to drink tap water? And yes and no, right? Tap water... We do have some of the best tap water in the world, but it's still chlorinated, which is a big issue because chlorine will kill your uh, gut bacteria the same way that it kills bacteria in, in drinks. So when you drink that, yeah, it's a little bit, but it adds up over time. If you're drinking tap water every single day, multiple glasses of it, yeah, it's a little bit of... of uh, uh, chlorine per glass, but it adds yeah. up. If you're doing that over years, you're going to get this effect where it's kind of sterilizing your gut slowly over time. That that's what people are afraid of with fluoride. Yeah, with fluoride, fluoride in, in our waters, and uh, I <clears throat> I know that some filters, uh, like the classic Brita filters, they can filter out um, some fluoride and some other um, things that might be in our water. But yeah. I don't know how good of a job it does, and uh, if that is really your con if that is a person's concern, what would you suggest? Yeah, so well, we don't fluorinate our water in Canada, right? And that's a very good thing. Fluoride is definitely a toxin in too high of amounts. Fluoride is something that is found in in concentrations in a healthy human even two three hundred years ago. It, it's part of bones and teeth as well, but a very 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 minimal amount, a very trace mineral. Getting it in water is certainly too much exposure. As a mineral, it's going to bioaccumulate. And supposedly it lowers IQ as well. What about doing the detox? Would that get rid of the fluoride? Or Yeah, it might. I mean, I've read about the you know supposed rumors of it calcifying the pineal gland. Too much fluoride. I don't know if that's absolutely true. But... That is something I'm still curious to see if somebody can prove that. Right. Um, I would say, uh, maybe avoid saying things like this, generally vaguely offensive to all of America, but America is internationally considered to have kind of a low IQ, right? A lot of that probably does have to do with the uh, education system. There is also a lot of very smart, very educated people in the States, but median, there is a lot of very poor, uh, low intellect people. And some of that may be contributed to by the fluoride in the water. Mm -hmm. I can't say for sure, but it is a correlation that seems like it, it may be provable so <laughs> with the right study applied to it. Why would... What, what benefit would it do to these big companies to add fluoride, let's say, in our water or in... Well, in fluoride is in toothpaste, right? So it helps it prevent yeah. tooth decay. So that's the thinking of why they add it to water. Or that's the official opinion thinking of why they add it to water in America is just to prevent tooth decay. It's a little nonsensical to me because it's... You're drinking the water, it touches your teeth for all of one second, and then you swallow it. And then that fluoride's in your body and has to be digested. And from then on out, it's not doing anything for your teeth. 
right? It might do mm -hmm. a, a little bit if you absorb some and if you did actually need fluoride, but fluoride isn't an issue, right? Fluoride's not something that needs to be supplemented with. It's not even really known if it is essential, the actual research. Like, it is found in bones and teeth in healthy humans, naturally, like, but it's not really known what it does per se. Like, when they actually look at the bone and teeth matrix, they can't actually yet figure out what fluoride does that's necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Everything else that's an established nutrient, we know, right? We know that you need calcium and phosphorus and magnesium and vitamin D3 and K2 to make healthy bones as well as boron, right? There's a lot of things that go into it. But fluoride, they're like, well, it's there. Same with strontium. Strontium is another trace mineral that is sold as a supplement. You can buy it in certain places and, and you'll find ads that tout it. But there's no research actually supporting if it does promote healthier bones. If you buy it and you take it, there's... No study so far that's been able to confirm if your bone matrix is going to get denser if you take strontium. But it's there, mm -hmm. naturally. Could, could, could there be a link from those two to... Um, for, so, for example, on toothpaste, it says uh, almost all toothpaste has fluoride. And it says, if swallowed, call poison control. Yeah. Because fluoride is a pretty toxic... Um, uh, mineral or it is a mineral okay yeah. yeah so it is a pretty toxic mineral and you know that kind of considering they put it in our waters I know it's trace amounts but I've heard from different interviews and um, different sources that when you brush your teeth or when you uh, drink water with fluoride in it there is still enough time for the fluoride to be absorbed into your body through your gums and which will, I mean, it'll later end up in your body. So it'll absorb there and do it. Yeah. Drain. No, I don't think it should be added to water. I'm sure people would debate me on that. Uh, it is nationally put in water in the States. From my view, there's no good evidence for that. I'm very happy that Canada doesn't put it in our water. It's not good to get too much because we're talking about acute toxicity versus chronic toxicity, right? So if you swallow toothpaste, you have to call poison control. So the dose is so high that if you swallow it, you might get acute poisoning, which is a super high dose of something in a short time frame that overloads the body systems and causes catastrophic failure of organs. That's acute toxicity. Chronic toxicity is a little more insidious, right? Because it's long-term, low-grade exposure. That's what we're talking about here with the heavy metal tests, with the lead and mercury. It never is enough in one sitting to cause an acute failure of organs, right? But over the course of years, you're getting a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. You get these big concentrations in the tissue gradients and they reduce multiple, pretty much every system in the body between lead and mercury. You're going to be physically slower, physically weaker, have less like lower reaction time, so you're going to be less athletic, right? You're going to have worse recovery, you're going to have worse mental health, you're going to have more depression and anxiety, you're going to you have a lower IQ, base IQ. It's just like this, all stats of who you are will just get reduced with heavy metal toxicity. And that's just one avenue of toxins, heavy metals too. Mm. And so that's scary when there's so many other things, right? Glyphosate, 
An interesting thing that I, I look at, like with Europe, glyphosate is banned. Roundup, it's a, it's a pesticide from Monsanto that seems to bioaccumulate in uh, our tissues and possibly causes uh, symptoms relatable with IBS. So that also, the research is gray. Monsanto is a huge corporation that has powerful lawyers that could sue and litigate me, actually, if I speak against it. So I try to be careful. Yeah. Um, I'm going very much against the grain already with a lot of this. But uh, we look at, so an interesting thing, this is sort of the holistic side of it as I look at stuff like this. I look at, say, how often people go to Europe. They go to Spain, they go to Italy, and they eat breads for weeks, and they say, oh, I've never felt better, and I digested them great, and I feel great, but when I eat bread at home in Canada or America, I feel like shit. I can't help but think that that's because of glyphosate, because glyphosate is banned in Europe, and it is sprayed liberally on fucking everything in North America, all crops. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty much impossible to avoid, right? It gets contaminated, it'll, it'll carry up in the winds and it'll, it'll go and infect other crops it's not even supposed to be on. There's so much of it used annually that it is saturated deeply in the waterways and in the soils across North America. So it's at a point where we can't get away from it. It's been used for a long time. And I think that's, that's another part of the conversation that needs to be looked at. But that's a multi-billion dollar industry, oh, right? Yeah. That's an industry yeah. that a lot of people that have a lot more money than me don't want to see go down. But it's contributing to the health epidemic, the downfall of people, right? You mentioned, sorry, you mentioned bread in Europe versus, let's say, the United States. Yeah. A lot of the bread here on this side of the world has enriched on it. Mm. Have you done any Actually, uh, no, you know I haven't looked to see if okay. bread in Europe is enriched or not. But yeah, that's an interesting point because you refine it down to the base white flour. You get rid of everything in the bran and the hull. And then you enrich it with various concentrations of B vitamins and what have you. Mm. One of the big issues that's talked about these days with enrichment is specifically uh, with folate. And folate is vitamin B9, and it's a really interesting nutrient because a lot of people have a gene mutation. Uh, it's called MTHFR, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. Okay. And estimated like 40 to 50% of the population have a atypical gene for MTHFR where they do not synthesize folate into MTHF, methyl tetrahydrofolate. Reductase is the enzyme reductase is the name of enzyme, so mm -hmm. MTHF, reductase. But it's methyl tetrahydrofolate is the active form of folate that the human body uses. But supplements are always folate or folic acid. Folic acid is synthetic and you should avoid it because um, it's even worse. At, it, I believe, doesn't synthesize into methyl tetrahydrofolate. Um, but so yeah, there's a lot of this folate added in enriched foods and then a lot of people have a deficiency in their ability to actually methylate that folate. Methylation is a body system, part of the whole detoxification pathways and everything. And so methylating things, it's this process that happens rather complicated. It happens every second. There's methylation going on in various processes through the body. And so... As an example, folate needs to be methylated into methyl tetrahydrofolate to work. 
-hmm. So if you if you don't if you can't do that and you're getting too much folate before folic acid, it'll just accumulate and it it's there's research ongoing to see what it really does. It seems like it's affecting a lot of people negatively. Again, it's a gray area. There's a lot of people that are on the opposite side of the fence that might lobby me for saying such an opinion so starkly. <laughs> how much how, how much can we truly trust these these studies that are being done because if they are at all sponsored by one of the big companies that you know make the product that they're testing then the test would come out as this but when it's truly something else so yeah how, so it, it's i don't know so because like back then that wouldn't really be a thing um nowadays it's becoming more and more and more and more like we see it more and more mm -hmm. so yeah you definitely you got to look at each study there's a lot that are good but yeah there's some that might be shady because you got to look at who's funding it who's backing it and what are their motives right there is a lot of shady dealings that we see yeah. but i i'm not going to call anything out specifically okay fair <laughs> enough, fair enough, fair enough. Um, is it okay if we uh, move towards sugar because yeah. sugar we yeah, have for sure so yeah. yeah but like sugar is in every single food we eat mm -hmm. um, there is some people say there are good types of sugar there are bad types of sugar yeah um, processed sugar non-processed sugar uh, fruit sugar not fruit sugar what what, uh -huh. what is your thoughts and yeah so basically the sugar that the human body uses is glucose right okay so glucose isn't really found in nature so this is an interesting thing right is if there is a food that just contains glucose, that is phenomenal sugar. The only one that I'm aware of is grapes. The sugar in grapes is glucose. But in almost everything else, it's fructose or, well, sucrose is man-made. Um, it's like a molecule of glucose and fructose bound together makes uh, sucrose. Mm -hmm. And fructose is interesting because it can be converted into glucose, but it needs to be done in the liver. And if you eat too much fructose at one time and it overburdens the liver's ability to convert it into glucose, what the liver does, and it does it really well, it turns that fructose into triglycerides. And what are triglycerides? They're tri-pronged fats, essentially. They're fatty molecules that have three prongs on them. That's the tri three branches, three single chains on them. And triglycerides are in the blood, right? Okay. High triglycerides, they're associated with a lot of cardiovascular issues and in general, those triglycerides get turned into adipose tissue. So that's, that's the proce process that happens. You eat a ton of fructose, your, your liver goes, oh, we're overloaded with fructose, so to stop this from damaging our body, we are gonna convert all this extra fructose into triglycerides, then those triglycerides are gonna get converted into adipose tissue fat cells, and the body's gonna make new adipose tissue fat cells. And so that is essentially how sugar makes you fat, is it's the fructose getting converted into triglycerides, then getting converted into adipose tissue. And, sorry, you said fructose is found in most foods? Yeah, I mean, like, fructose is fruit sugar, right? So it's what you're going to see in most things. Sucrose table sugar is a 50-50 because your liver takes that. And it, I'm not saying it's good here because we eat way too much. I don't want to say anything positive about sugar because it is, in the concentrations that we eat, it's a, it's a toxin, right? And so your liver will take it and it'll basically cleave it in half and it'll use the glucose molecule, it'll put that into circulation and then it'll take the fructose and it'll do with the fructose what it does based on 
can it convert it to glucose or does it need to turn it into a triglyceride? I see. Right. So glucose is the best sugar. Glucose is, is what the body uses for fuel. Okay, so here we need to look at how does, what does the body use for fuel, right? And so here we get into glycolysis and ketosis. That's it. Those are the two systems that your body makes energy. If we could also talk about ATP, quick form release energy, adenosine triphosphate. Yes, that's a different part of the conversation. But essentially, what the tissues use, what the brain uses, what the muscles use, glycolysis or ketosis, right? Mm -hmm. In glycolysis, it's glucose. That's it. So you have uh, like blood sugar concentrations, right? Blood, blood sugar concentrations need to be kept. The blood is always keeping it in a certain range, just like pH. pH is the acidity of the body, alkaline, acidic, right? And that's another whole part of health and wellness. There's many avenues of this, and it can take a very, very long time to really get to the depth, the meat and the core, and get it all mm -hmm. explained. Uh, but so, yeah, in glycolysis, you're using glucose in the blood, and extra glucose your body stores as glycogen. So it dehydrates glucose and turns it into glycogen. And so in an average-sized man, 150-pound, 5'10 man, uh, you can store about 2,000 calories worth of glycogen, right? And then as your body needs it, as you exercise or whatever you're not eating, it'll rehydrate that and put it into circulation as glucose, right? Okay. It's, it's a little bit complicated, but it's, it's body's very good at doing it, right? So that's glycolysis. And then ketosis, of course, is when you're so void of glucose, your glycogen stores are completely tanked, and you have you're none in your diet, so your body switches to converting or producing ketones in the liver for energy, right? And so that's ketosis, is using ketones for energy. It's, it's fats. Yeah. Essentially, it would be too much of it. That's it. It's, it's really simple. We eat way, way, way too much of it for how, the body to handle. Mm, you'd have to look at everybody individually, okay. right? And you'd have to look at, well, mineral concentrations as well and pH of the body. So sugar is acidic, right? So if you eat a lot of sugar, it's going to reduce your pH. The pH scale, uh, it's, you're supposed to sit at about 7.1. I actually, here, give me one second. I'll get yeah, something. Yeah. So, yeah, we have, these are ketone test strips, urine test strips. Okay. See if you're in ketosis, because I do it every now and then, a lot of fasting. And so basically, like, that's, that's kind of the range that you want to see if you're in, in ketosis, right? There's, there's a bit of a chart. Ah, it's actually not, not exactly a fully explanative chart, but that sort of helps you get an idea. Uh, there's a scale, right? So how many ketones are in the blood? Uh, that, yeah, okay, mm -hmm. that's a little bit different, but... Um, yeah, so sugar, okay, the body needs a lot of magnesium to digest sugar. So one of the main things that I would say with sugar is if you're eating a lot of sugar, you need to be making sure that you're getting a lot of magnesium. Where can you right? get that from? Magnesium, mm, well, ma okay, so the, the best way, magnesium is the central ion in chlorophyll, right? Chlorophyll is what makes plants green. Okay. So everything that you eat that's green all the chlorophyll and anything, that is going to have a magnesium ion at its center. So that's a great way to get magnesium, right? In this modern world, 
for anybody who eats too much sugar or really eats much of any sugar at all, like unless, unless you have a super clean, like elite athlete type diet, super lean, you're tracking your calories every day, you're yeah. not drinking a pop ever, you're not drink, eating a candy bar like ever, maybe once every month or whatever, right? If you're not that person, you probably need a magnesium supplement. Food probably isn't enough. It's estimated that 70% of North America is deficient in magnesium. Wow. Yeah, and magnesium has hundreds of functions throughout the body. It's, a, it's like a metallo or a metabolic enzyme. So it has multiple, multiple processes with different stages of metabolism as in enzyme pathways. It's important for you know, bones as well with the calcium and magnesium uh, ratio. Calcium and magnesium in the blood are interesting actually, so they're supposed to be kind of balanced. And if you have, here's an interesting thing you notice, if you ever have too many eye twitches, like if your eye is just twitching, okay. or, or any part of your body essentially, eye is a common one, but any part of your body where the muscle is just twitching a lot, it likely means that you have not enough magnesium and or too much calcium, but that's not as common. It's usually too little magnesium. So calcium in the blood, it has another function than the bones as an ionic sort of uh, contractor, right? And so magnesium on the other side of the coin of that is the relaxer. So if you don't have enough magnesium, the calcium is gonna contract too much and it's gonna cause like those twitches just contracting, contracting, and there's not enough magnesium there to relax it and like calm it down, right? Magnesium's often taken as a muscle relaxant. That's uh, among many functions for muscle recovery as a relaxant. Helps you sleep if you can get it in the brain. So magnesium forms, right? Not all magnesium are the same. Minerals, they're not all the same. We're looking at organic chemistry with minerals, right? You have inorganic minerals, you have organic minerals, you have different forms, what they're bound to, right? So it's not like a one size fits all, right? And so we, when we get into supplementation, this is an interesting aside where, what should you take? I know so many people that take a multivitamin, right? And I've looked and looked and looked at all the multivitamins on the market and none of them are good. I have never found a single multivitamin mineral all-in-one supplement that is actually good. What they do when they try to deliver everything in one horse pill, mm -hmm. they're giving you cheap forms. If you look at the forms, like most often you will look under magnesium, it'll say oxide, magnesium oxide. It'll say zinc oxide, right? Those, they have very, very poor bioavailability. Oxides, I they see. have such poor bioavailability that they are considered possibly toxic because instead of actually absorbing into tissues and working for the functions, they may actually just accumulate and cause issues. Is it in because the dosage is so small? It's because of the, the form of it. Okay. That's it. So like a magnesium citrate is a common supplement. Citrates in general are common, considered like to have about 60% bioavailability. They're pretty good. Now with supplements for minerals, what you really want to see is uh, glycinates or anything bound to an amino acid. So like magnesium bisglycinate is a very popular supplement for, well, magnesium supplements, a very popular form now. It has like a 90% bioavailability, 90, 
And so what that is, is it's magnesium bound to the amino acid L-glycine, right? Okay. And so with minerals, the way that they're absorbed in the body is by being bound to amino acids. We see it with selenium, a trace mineral that we need for detox and heavy metal detox. Very good at getting mercury out. Selenium, the best supplement for that is called L-selenomethionine. That is selenium bound to the amino acid L-methionine, which is also a sulfur-containing amino acid. So you're also getting some sulfur with that, which is also very important for detox. And so that is that like L-selenomethionine has a bioavailability of like 98, 99%. So these minerals chelated to amino acids are all the ones on the market that have the best bioavailability. So if you have a supplement, you need to be making sure that you're getting, you're looking at what is it bound to, what form of it is it in, and is this a bioavailable form my body can actually use? For so, sure, yeah. Yeah, so sorry, so oxide isn't a good form? No. What are the bad forms and what are the good forms you should be looking at? Oxide is the main that bad one, one okay. that you'll see in supplements that people will actually use. It's a, it's a real cop-out. It's just really cheap and it kind of does get absorbed but not nearly well okay. enough. Very, yeah. very poor, right? And with vitamins, Mm, that's a whole different conversation. So minerals, I think, need to be supplemented with more than anything else. If there was any one supplement that I think people should take, it's a multi-mineral supplement. It's a balanced multi-mineral. Because okay. you can get pretty decent multi-minerals, uh, you know, three capsules a day in the good forms. That's pretty reasonable. You're never going to get anything in one horse pill. And in general, pills should kind of be avoided because they have binders and fillers and your body needs to break it down and it, it can be difficult oftentimes especially with elderly people or people with uh, underactive stomachs and underactive hydrochloric acid they'll have insufficient hydrochloric acid to actually break that pill up and break it up and separate the nutrients from the binders and fillers and actually use it so In sorry what are people, the binders and the fillers sorry uh titanium dioxide and things okay. like that it's you, you yeah you can see on any supplement label it's the other ingredients at the bottom there's all these fillers and binders usually with uh with capsules with free form powder you'll see a lot less like you'll see like maybe just microcrystalline cellulose or one or two as opposed to the tablets have multiple and yeah ba basically the simplest way to explain it is like tablets should be avoided for the most part you might be able to use them but uh Tablets are, are never ideal. Freeform powders or soft gels are almost always better. Mm -hmm. I'll say always. I can't think of any instances where that's not the case. Okay. Um, and sorry, that's just for minerals or vitamins too? Yeah, it was same for vitamins, but vitamins is kind of a different conversation. So minerals... Everybody needs more minerals because the soils are deficient. The food that we're eating is grown in soils that are deficient in trace minerals that we need. I see. And okay. we're getting too many of these heavy metals and other toxins that bully out minerals, right? Minerals are something that our body can't produce any of. So we need to get all of our minerals from what we eat, right? So when we're getting not even close to enough, those become a critical thing that we need to get in our diet. Vitamins are are a little bit in between minerals and macronutrients like proteins like proteins fats and carbs you don't really need to supplement any of them you, you might in certain instances but 
that's a lot more nuanced than we sort of have time for. But in broad strokes here, vitamins are also nuanced, a lot more nuanced than minerals. Minerals themselves are nuanced. Really, you should be getting blood testing done to see what deficiencies you have before you really hammer into anything. But in general, a balanced mineral supplement is something that in a daily routine would be good for pretty much everybody. I see. Yeah, but so vitamins, they're a little different because you can get them a little more readily in foods and also you can have different issues with them a little bit easier than you'll have with minerals, right, if you take too many. Like, for example, with vitamin C, uh, you can have something called rebound scurvy, right? Obviously, scurvy is the deficiency of vitamin C over, over one or two months. But if you were, say, to take a vitamin C supplement every day for like two months, like three grams a day, like three one-gram tablets a day for like two months, and then you stopped cold turkey and you weren't eating anything else that had any vitamin C, any ascorbic acid, you can actually develop rebound deficiency symptoms, symptoms that are scurvy. It'll go away, uh -huh. but essentially with, with vitamins, so... Vitamins are split into fat-soluble and water-soluble. The fat-soluble vitamins are A, E, D, and K. So the risk with supplementing fat-soluble vitamins A, E, D, and K is that they, because they're fat-soluble, the body can store them. So the risk is simply that if you take too many, you can actually over-accumulate and you can cause toxicity symptoms. Okay, so sorry. Usually... Yeah, yeah, sorry. So it stores them, and then once your body needs them, it'll... Yeah, it, it'll use some when you like when you take them, whatever. But it'll also store excess, right? Okay. It'll it'll excrete some, but it'll the fats, fat soluble uh, tissues in general tend to stay in the body longer. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, liposomal supplements. So like liposomal vitamin C is often a supplement that's made because vitamin C is a water soluble vitamin along with all the B complex vitamins. Those are all the water soluble vitamins. Water soluble vitamins only stay in the body for a couple of hours essentially. So if you actually want to supplement vitamin C for benefits, well, intravenously is the best way. Get it right into the blood. But next to that, liposomal vitamin C is the best way because liposomal vitamin C will raise your blood concentrations of vitamin C for much longer, much longer half-life, maybe say 12 hours. I, I can't say off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah. Much longer than water-soluble vitamin C, which on average is three hours. So if you really okay. want to supplement you need to take water-soluble vitamin C like three times a day. So then you'll get to that position that I mentioned where you might take three grams a day. You might know that, so you might take three of those a day, spread out evenly, do that for a couple months, and then you might stop. And if you're not drinking or eating anything else that has any ascorbic acid, you might develop uh, some rebound scurvy. Mm -hmm. You can get it with vitamin B1, thiamine as well, rebound beriberi. Beriberi is essentially what scurvy was for uh, English sailors. Uh, beriberi was with uh, Chinese or Japanese sailors. I don't want to say, but it was rice. It was because they were eating white rice yeah. and they didn't have any thiamine in their food, vitamin B1. So there's another condition, beriberi, and you'll get rebound beriberi. If you take way too much thiamine and same thing. So B vitamins and vitamin C are kind of interesting like that. All the water solubles. You can also like with B vitamins, you can throw out the concentration of other ones if you take too much of one. Like there's various reasons why you take one or the other, what have you. Some people take B6 uh, 
bodybuilders maybe because it helps with protein synthesis. Some people take B5 because it helps you relax. It can be good for anxiety. A lot of people take B9 and B12 is very common because of anemia and, and risks and issues of, of blood anemia, right? Not enough uh, red blood cells. So what you can really do there though, like is if you take like a lot of B6, you might lower and I, uh, I'm not going to speak specifically because I'm a bit, I'm a bit uh, out of touch on it, but it's, it's cautioned that with B vitamins, you shouldn't take any one in a high concentration. You should take them as a complex, right? B complex. But even okay. then, I notice like B supplements, B complex supplements are often very, very high dosages. Like if you look at the actual daily values you need, and then a lot of them will be like, oh yeah, a thousand percent. 800%, 600% of your daily value of B6. And why? Why are you doing that? That shouldn't be a daily thing, right? Because that along this track plan of the, the changing your body systems, it's going to, the same, well, like, why does beriberi rebound, beriberi rebound, uh, scurvy happen, right? Because your body gets used to having that excess. And then when you take it away, it doesn't know how to deal with that. So why would you supplement with any of them in excess daily and risk having your body get used to that and then not have it, and then it's actually gonna perform worse than it did in absence, than it used to perform in absence before okay. you started supplementing and you raised your tolerance, right? So you kinda of have to be careful with that, right? And the fat solubles, yeah, same thing, kinda of have to be careful. Uh, but for people in our region of the world, for people in the North Hemisphere, D3 is a supplement that should pretty much be taken by everybody. It's estimated that in, say, Canada, in the winter months, roughly 90% of the Canadian population is deficient in vitamin uh, D if they're not yes, supplementing with it. Too, yeah. right? And yeah. so you need D3. D3 is the actual form that your body makes. It's a complicated system from the synthesis with the sun rays, and then it sends that one form to the liver, and then it converts it into something else. It has to go to the kidneys, and it's a long process before it becomes D3. But you need to supplement D3. Uh, otherwise, your body will have to go through some of that. And then you also need K2 with it, right? So you should never take a D3 supplement on its own. K2 is from what, sorry? So if, if, if D3 is from the sun? Yeah, so... K2, actually, if you have a healthy gut biome, your uh, bacteria in your gut can produce vitamin K. Okay. But everybody's got a different biome. And that's a whole ball of wax in its own conversation, the gut biome and what that does to your overall health. So a healthy gut biome will produce multiple nutrients. Like uh, riboflavin, I know, can be produced uh, by healthy gut bacteria. Biotin, riboflavin and biotin are B vitamins. Those can both be produced. Vitamin K2 also produced. Uh, I've heard some others as well. Um, but that's going to be dependent on the individual. What is, what is your gut biome, right? Yeah. And well, a lot of people today have kind of... Uh, less than ideal gut biomes, right? Oh, yeah. People don't eat nearly enough probiotics or fiber. And so fiber, there's two types of fiber, right? Okay. So I should clarify this. There's soluble and insoluble fiber, right? So insoluble fiber is what people most often think of when they think of fiber. They think of like metamucil, like a broom, like something that's like, it acts as a broom, right? Okay. And it cleans you out. And that is what insoluble fiber is. It's just a broom. Uh, soluble fiber is completely different, actually. Soluble fiber is something that you, your own body doesn't use, but your bacteria eat to gain strength and proliferate. 
So you feed your own gut bacteria with the soluble fibers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the soluble fiber. It washes your inside and gets everything that out. Would that kind of be like detox or the insoluble fiber does that? In oh, insoluble. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be a good place to start. A real detox regimen. It'll it'll get really complex, right? Soluble fiber is a good place to start for sure. Soluble and insoluble fiber, if you want to clear out the guts. But you kind of have to be careful. Like sometimes, well, depending on your condition, if you just suddenly go on a kick of eating a bunch of uh, insoluble fiber, I've read some anecdotes that it causes more upset. And if you, if you don't do it gently and slowly, it can cause more issues. One that I remember reading about was in the, uh, the ileocecal valve, which is the valve between the ileum and the cecum, which are the second and third, I believe, portions of the small intestine. And so there's all these valves, right? And that valve with people with IBS is very commonly inflamed and insoluble fiber irritates that like no tomorrow. And so it causes more uh, inflammatory immune response in that area of the digestive tract if you just try to hammer through issues with that. So yeah, as far as detox goes, like, okay, if I wanna talk about that, the best way to do detox is to start fasting more. And you wanna start slow with that. You wanna start with some intermittent fasting. If you're not used to fasting, definitely start with intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is, is it's kind of a fad now, right? A lot of people do it to increase their metabolism and all that. I'm not opposed to intermittent fasting at all. It definitely has some interesting research, but I'm a lot more interested in fasting for autophagy. And so what autophagy is, is it's a body process that is started once you get about 18 hours plus into a fast. And what autophagy is, is it's a recycling and rejuvenating process in the body. And what research shows, there's a lot of interesting things that happen once you get into autophagy. So you need to get deep into autophagy to get these benefits. But when you look at the start of autophagy around the 18 hour mark, and you follow that through a 36 hour mark, there's studies that have shown that multiple different biochemical compounds in the body, growth hormone, right, that we talked about, brain derived nootropic factor, which is both neuroprotective and neuroregenerative, right? So healing and protecting the brain, that growth hormone, and glutathione from the liver, which glutathione is really prevalent with the immune system. It's really important for liver and lung health, and it's present in every cell in the body. Those three chemicals that are all very associated with healing, they skyrocket when you get into autophagy. Now to get them really up there, you've got to get deep into fasting. You've got to get to like the 72 hour mark, right? But they start to raise when you get into autophagy. Blood concentrations in, in any person that's what autophagy does. So it clears out uh, foreign material. So your body will start to garburate things in your body. So one of the first things that happens when you fast into autophagy is you reduce inflammation in your gut. When you reduce inflammation in your gut, you reduce mucus. So this problem of IBS indigestion, it all really starts from that inflammation inflammation. What happens when you get inflammation? You get an immune response. What happens when you get an immune response? You get mucus, 
right? So in the okay. gut, a lot of mucus forms, and then you can get these mucoid plaques, and it's like a lot of people have a lot of compounded matter in their colon and in their intestines, in their small and large intestines, and that forms into these mucoid plaques over years of poor dieting with not enough vitamin A, not enough vitamin E, not enough fiber, insoluble, soluble, not enough probiotics, not enough of any of these things. Enzymes are very big as well, right? So enzymes, that's another angle that we haven't even touched on. So enzymes, right? Historically, we would get a lot of enzymes from food, but now we cook a lot of our food and we then kill the enzymes. They're very sensitive to cooking, right? So unless you're eating raw food, you're not going to get that many enzymes. So like what, what kind of food? Any food. Okay. Fruits and vegetables, things like that. The body makes a lot of enzymes as well, but the way that the body is designed is kind of to, to get some enzymes from the food and then to provide some. Okay. But the modern diet, the way that it is, is that the human body has to take the burden of all the enzyme production. So we make amylase in our saliva. Amylase breaks down carbohydrates. Uh, and then in the stomach, we have that pepsinogen that starts to break down the protein. The pancreas produces uh, protease, lipase, and more amylase, which all produce or break down fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And then you have bile from, from the gallbladder that also emulsifies and helps to digest fats. So this is some of the major ways brush border enzymes in the small intestine, some of the major enzymes produced in the body, right? Okay. But we're supposed to get some from food. So we get none of those from food. So this is all part of the issue is like not enough enzymes, not enough probiotics, not enough fiber, not enough of the minerals and the, the vitamins that you need to digest. All the B vitamins have to do with digesting and catalyzing enzymatic reactions to use carbohydrates, proteins, and fats and turn them into body tissues and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So what are, so you mentioned like vitamin D3 mm -hmm. where you know, we don't have enough at all. Um, what other vitamins should one consider taking? Yeah, so that's all going to be situation dependent. Vitamin D3 is a good one because it, it applies to everybody in the northern hemisphere during the winter, right? So just for the six months of winter yeah. in the year, you should be supplementing D3K2. Other than that, it's going to be all situation dependent, excuse me. So... Really, you'd have, to, you'd have to get blood testing okay. done. You'd have to get genetic testing done. I actually just got results for a very interesting genetic test uh, two days ago from AOR. It's a supplement company in Canada, Advanced Orthomolecular Research. And so they have this test. It's uh, called My Blueprint. And so uh, it's like $300. And you basically take a saliva sample. You ship it out to them. It takes about six weeks. And they give you a readout to tell you what your genome codes for for the various uh, vitamins. So, for example, what I learned is for me, I don't convert beta carotene into vitamin A very well. My genes don't code for that, right? Beta carotene is, of course, carrots and, and mangoes and anything okay. orange, right? Uh, carotenoids in red and orange foods and that. Those carotenes get converted into vitamin A, so that's a major source of vitamin A for people, right? But my genes code that it's, they're terrible at converting beta-carotene into vitamin A, which means that I need to get most of my vitamin A from animal sources, which is retinol. Retinol is the usable form of vitamin A in the, in the human body, right? Mm -hmm. So I learned that. Another one that I learned is my body is terrible at converting ALA, which is alpha-lipoic acid, 
alpha-lipoic acid is plant omega-3. It's terrible at converting that ALA into the usable human versions of omega-3, which is EPA and DHA, right? EPA and DHA is what's found in the human body, what we need. So when you eat fish, the omega-3 that you're getting is EPA and DHA. When you eat chia seeds or flax hearts or, or uh, anything like that, hemp hearts, walnuts, you're getting ALA, right? I see. So my okay. genetics code that they're terrible at converting ALA into EPA and DHA. So again, I need to get most of my omega-3 from animal sources, right? Mm -hmm. I found that I do have an anomaly in my MTHFR gene, so I don't convert folate into methyl tetrahydrofolate well enough, so I need to supplement with L5-MTHF. I see. So, every, so everybody is, com sorry, so everybody's completely different. Um, yeah. What tests would you suggest people take to find out what they might need, what they might need less of? Yeah, so, so the, the first thing that I think everybody should really do is a CBC. It's a complete CBC. blood uh, count. Okay. So that's done, it's covered by MSP. That's, that's, you can get that requisition through a doctor, no problem. And that's sort of essentially what would be considered like an annual checkup is just getting a okay. CBC done. Because so what a CBC shows, it shows your red blood cell count. It shows the amount of uh, platelets in your blood. It gives a breakdown of all your white blood cells, your neutrophils, eosinophils, macrophages, and there's a whole okay. breakdown of that. It shows you your blood ferritin, which is basically associated with the ability to uh, carry iron in the blood. So that can, so your, your red blood cell count, your blood ferritin count, and then it also shows you your B12 blood levels. So all three of those uh, can be indicative to tell you, do you have any issues with uh, anemia? Do you need more iron or B12? Right? It'll show you your glucose tolerance factor, which shows you if you're uh, pre-diabetic for type 2 diabetes. Okay. And so the CBC is really the first thing to get like a snapshot of what's going on. That's It's free and uh, beneficial to get. I would say this test that I got done a couple days ago has been one of the better tests that I've done, considering it gave me genetic information, you know, something that I can't change. There is epigenetics, it's a fascinating study within genetics to sort of look at how genetics are expressed, epigenetics is. You have your genetics, and then you have epigenetics is how those are expressed, right? What, how are genes turned on and turned off, right? Okay. So, yeah, I think that one would be a really good one to do. Like a common one that's recommended is getting the MTHFR test done because it's one that's common in so many people. And I really like this AOR test because, I mean, if you want to go get an MTHFR test, it's like 100, 150 bucks just for that. But okay. you do the AOR test for 300 bucks, it gives you your MTHFR results and it also gives you a hell of a lot more. It told me some really interesting stuff. Like I have muscle fiber for endurance and power. I have, it told me a lot about good and bad genes. It's like I have genes that code that it takes me longer to recover after exercise, right? So I build up more lactic acid and it takes me longer to recover than the average person. I metabolize alcohol slower than the average person, so I get drunk easier. So it tells you a lot of interesting stuff like that. Yeah. It tells okay. you if you need, uh, so what I figured out through that is, okay, I need to be getting more uh, methylcobalamin uh, sublingually, that's B12. That's one of the forms of B12. Methylcobalamin sublingually is the best form to supplement for B12. So I need that because I have a genetic 
uh, atypical gene that says that I don't absorb B12 as well as, as a normal person. I see. So I need methyl tetrahydrofolate, I need methylcobalamin sublingual, I need iron because I also don't transport iron into uh, blood cells properly. Uh, so I have a little bit of a deficiency there. Um, and I need a lot of uh, animal source omega-3 and vitamin A. That's, that's pretty much it. So like I, that's val valuable information for me. That's well worth $300 for me to know yeah. that a lot of that is stuff I've already suspected based on previous blood work and, and my own, how my body feels and what I know about nutrition and what I know nutrients do in my own breakdown. So it actually very much fits and it made me think, wow, I really should have trusted my gut years ago and just been taking more B12. I do get uh, B12 shots annually, and I think that's a good thing for people to do, mm -hmm. B12 injections. In general, B B12 is a scary one. There's something that can happen with B12 that, that really begs good reason why people pay attention to it so much, right? So if you're deficient in B12 for multiple years, uh, folate and B12, they're synergistic. They work along the, a lot of the same body processes. So folate can cover B12 deficiency, and a lot of the issues of B12 deficiency might not become so apparent that you feel a medical need to, to have intervention until one of the really bad ones happens. And one of the ones that is irreparable is B12 deficiency over five, six years will result in the erosion of what is called the myelian sheath, which is a, is a sheath that covers the nerve cells in the body. So it's a protective coating. And when that myelian sheath erodes, you have nerve damage and it's irreparable. So... You can go six years with a B12 deficiency and not know it until you're feeling symptoms of nerve damage from myelin sheath erosion. It's too late, right? So that's a scary thing. That's why preventative medicine is so important, right? We can't be looking at treatments. A lot of times treatments, by the time it gets to that point, it's too late. If you look at Alzheimer's, it's said that by the time... Uh, they still don't know a lot about Alzheimer's, actually, which is interesting how, it's, how it starts. Really? But something that they have figured out is that once you start showing symptoms, it's too late. Once you start actually showing huh. symptoms and get to the point that you can get diagnosed, you've yeah. already had brain erosion for the last 10, 15 years, whatever it is, and it's too late for intervention. Huh. Scary stuff. So, right? so, so how should we be, should we be checking every 10 years? Uh, yeah, I mean, something or... like the CBC, I, I try to get a CBC done every year. It's very difficult because our medical system is wrecked. It's almost impossible to get a doctor's appointment. Yeah. Yeah. I can't get anything done. I don't have a doctor right now, and, and I use TELUS Health, and there's never any appointments available. So I feel, I, I don't know, I pay a lot of taxes. I pay like 20 grand a year in taxes, and I don't know really what I'm getting for it. Yeah. The roads are okay, I suppose. The education system is not very good, right? Yeah, to sp sorry, to speak on education system. Yeah. Why do you think that, I don't know, for example, I'm talking about my school and I know mm -hmm. some other schools, but right. a lot of, like, you don't really get taught nutrition in school. Yeah. Um, there's there's, there's uh, PE, gym, physical education, um, but that, that, that you just play games in the gym or, <laughs> you know, you work out with weights, but you don't get taught on... I don't know, for example, how muscle grows or why shouldn't you be eating this? Why should you be eating this? Um, so what, why, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Should we be teaching um, the younger generation about nutrition? 100%. I mean, I have a big fascination in it because I look at it as 
this is how the human body works, right? So a little preface, actually. The reason that I got into nutrition was uh, when I was a teenager, I didn't have the best home life, right? So I got into drugs and crime at a very, very, very young age when I was 13. I went down a very bad path. And essentially, when I was 14, I developed uh, drug-induced psychosis. So I had a psychotic break from marijuana, alcohol, uh, Adderall, abusing whatever I could get my hands on in the developing brain. I had a, a psychotic break, and I, so I was in a really bad space for a couple of years, and so I started looking. I was like, hey, I know I want to join the army when I'm an adult, and I don't want to... I looked it up, I was like, holy shit, I have psychosis, I'm 14, I don't want to be schizophrenic. You know, I want to do things with my life. I yeah. want to join the army. I want to have a clean medical record and be a functional member of society. Like, can I fix this? So I started researching neurotransmitters. I started looking at what is psychosis. And it was like, well, you know, you don't have enough dopamine or your serotonin is tanked. And it's, it's, I started getting into neurotransmitters. And I'm like, hey, what the hell makes neurotransmitters, right? And I start seeing... L-phenylalanine, L-tyrosine, these are amino acids, basic amino acids, B vitamins, you need B6, B, all the B vitamins really, they have different roles in there. And, okay. and a host of, uh, it's mostly amino acids and B vitamins really, that's a lot of the neurotransmitters. And so that sort of rabbit hole, I started supplementing with things, I started taking L-tyrosine and L-phenylalanine and B-complex and all that. And, and within about a year or two of just focusing on the basics, the fundamentals of minerals, vitamins, amino acids, what makes the human body, I was able to recover. It did take a couple years to really get out of it, but it really messed up my journey in high school and it made me quit drinking for a long time. I do drink socially now, quit weed for a long time. I will do that socially sometimes now as well. Mm -hmm. Quit all hard drink, right? Like a, a total life shift. Yeah. And I was able to recover myself without medical help. And that is really what made me realize that while well, preventive medicine is the answer, there is a solution. A lot of things we don't have the solution for yet because research isn't quite there. A lot of research with nutrients isn't there yet because there's no money in it, right? So people haven't done that many studies on zinc or magnesium or that because where's the money, right? The studies that exist, it was somebody who found a way to make money with the results. It was somebody who was willing to fund that study for some reason. There is a supplement industry that's pretty big, right? Yeah, so there's yeah. some avenues there, but there hasn't been nearly the amount of capital put in as has been for big pharma. Not oh, even yeah. close, right? Oh, yeah. For nutrients. So yeah, I mean, with the education system, I mean, I, I don't even know how, how it gets to that point. I could say it's, I could say it's John, you know, Rockefeller's fault <laughs> for funding the education system yeah. and, and attempting to turn everybody into, you know, productive members of society. And I could say it's a big systemic issue that stems from then. And I'm sure there is a lot of that eroding through. I find it pretty crazy. Like finances and nutrition are not touched on. They're so basic. Finances is the world around us exactly. and the society we live. Nutrition is how our bodies work and our health and wellness. It's two major pinnacles in everybody's life. Everybody deals with finances and healthcare to a huge degree forever. And neither one is talked about ever 
in any level of the education system unless yeah. you pursue it in, in post-secondary. And even then, I look at nutrition teachings post-secondary. I mean, you want to be a doctor? Look at what MDs learn. They don't learn nearly enough about nutrition. It's even void in the field that you go into to learn healthcare. They focus more on, wow. on drugs, right? They do learn a lot about the human body, but a lot of it's an anatomy and physiology, and it, a lot of it doesn't really go into the depth of biochemistry, some of it does, but specifically they don't really study nutrients and how nutrients react with the human body. So the things that they, they study, it's all peripheral and they have such a great baseline of, of knowledge, the average MD, they wouldn't need that much additional training to become much more well-rounded than they are, but the entire system is just not set up for that. And we also look at, I mean, how are doctors paid, right? They're paid by the amount of referrals, the amount of patients they see, the amount of prescriptions they give out. So yeah. they have a personal interest in rapid rate getting people through the door, right? So some are better than others, hey, right? I mean, some doctors are amazing. Some doctors are really there oh, to yeah, help people. Sure. But in my experience and the experience of people I've talked to, we could say this is rather anecdotal. I don't mean to pick a fight with MDs at large, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of them that pretty clearly are not really taking the time to get to know their patients and they're really just hammering them through. I mean, I remember one time like one of my friends in high school, uh, he was having big issues with his, with his hydrochloric acid and his digestion. He was having a lot of acid reflux. And he went to his doctor. His doctor immediately was just like, yep, here's some proton pump inhibitors prescription go great he made some money he did the thing that he was trained to do that's that's the information he was given yeah. that's what he was taught to do so it's not a, necessarily a fault of that person some of it might be that yes there is the incentive of referrals and patients to the door but there's there's different angles of this right and it doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad people or they're acting in bad faith but the system is designed to not really give them the most tools to do the exactly. best job so yeah. he gave my friend he was, he was 16 at the time proton pump inhibitors and i was right away i, I worked at a health food store at the time uh, wellspring health and wellness in tawasson and there's the supplement there uh called basin tabs from a company called pasco in germany i believe okay Basin tabs are, it, it, they're these little tabs that are mineral salts to alkalize the pH, right? That's all, that's all they do. I mean, those, those mineral salts will do a bunch of things because minerals are minerals. Your body, there's magnesium in there, zinc, calcium. All that stuff will get absorbed and do the myriad of functions it needs to do. But that, that supplement in, in particular was designed to buffer the pH, make it alkaline. And I told him, no, 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 like, okay, before you take those proton pump inhibitors, I told him, like, okay, I've researched those, those give you side effects, right? Like, they'll yeah. shut down your proton pumps more and they'll give you long-term side effects. They're, they're not something you really want to go on. They don't fix the issue. Try these. Yeah, it's going to be like 60 bucks. You're 16. You don't have a lot of money. Just like, just try it. Trust me, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. Fixed it. That was all it was. He had, he was just eating a lot of Burger King and he had an acidic pH, took some basin tabs, that was it. He never needed to take proton pump inhibitors. It was that simple to fix, right? Mineral salts. But he goes to an MD and he gives them fucking proton pump inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't the doctor know about mineral salts to alkalize pH? That's very simple, right? pH, that's in, in holistic nutrition, that's like a very baseline, like beginner thing you'd look at is pH. 
always. What's the yeah, pH? Yeah. What's the pH? It's good to get urine test strips actually for pH and you can test. You just be, oh, I'm really acidic right now. Mm -hmm. I need to do something. And actually, if you are really acidic, the best way to alkalize super quickly is baking soda. Oh. Super cheap. Yeah. Baking soda. Baking soda. Potassium bicarbonate, that's all baking soda is. Potassium bicarbonate is a phenomenal pH buffer. Huh. You got to be careful though, because if you take too much, you'll give yourself diarrhea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, with, with, with the doctors and the It's good for hangover system. cures though. Oh, Make really? yourself very acidic when you drink. Oh. Sorry. And no, no, yeah, no, I was just saying, I was saying with the healthcare system, um, the, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's the, it's the doctor's fault. I think it's the people above them and who teach them the kind of stuff. Just like you said, patients in and out the door, that's how they set it up to be. And yeah. they tell doctors that like you prescribe this because this pharma company is sponsoring. I know, I know that, I know that's kind of a, a, uh, a, a weird area to get to, but um, but yeah, these pharma companies are earning a lot of money from these medications that uh, doctors give and all that. So that kind of gives incentive for the for the doctors and whoever is a bit higher to say prescribe this and give them this. So yeah, yeah. So it's exactly it's it's rather convoluted. There's a lot of angles that play at it, but there's a lot of greed infused with all of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in my, in my view, the system would work very well if, say, in Canada, just yeah. in our healthcare system, if we took naturopathic doctors under the healthcare plan and made them sort of federal, uh, you know, level employees like doctors, like MDs are, if we, if we put them together, you'd get all the expertise of MDs and they have their place, right? But you would be adding in the preventive medicine and you'd be adding in, you know, something else. The big issue really, because what I'm saying here is naturopathic doctors don't get any sort of uh, subsidy from the government. So if you mm -hmm. want to go and become a naturopathic doctor, you need to make your own way, right? Versus when you become an MD, you do your schooling, you, you, you know, you tough it out, you do your residency for whatever specialty you're doing or GP, it's just two years and... Uh, it's a grind, sure, but then, you know, you, you have that path set out for you and it sort of carries you through and you're guaranteed to make great money, right? But with naturopathic doctors, you've got to start your own clinic or work for somebody else who started their own clinic and they have 100% of the risk, right? And so because it's not subsidized by the government at all, right, it's not part of our health plan, so people have to pay for it. Right? So people look and they're like, well, I can go to a clinic and I'll get these drugs, but it's free and it's covered because I, I pay into yeah. MSP, whatever. But if I want to go see a naturopathic doctor, it's expensive as hell. Most of them charge like $200 for a one-hour consult. Their treatments, if you want to get an IV bag, on average, they're like $180 to get one IV bag for something. Right? You want to get one uh, magnesium push, it's like 80 90 bucks, right? So it gets pr prohibitively expensive for the middle class that's already really crushed and squeezed. So simply like it's there, there's naturopathic doctors everywhere, but one part of it is people can't afford it. The other part of it is because they're not part of sort of the healthcare plan, they fall under this sort of gray banner. They fall under this banner of naturopath, right? And so here's something that like a lot of people don't really understand. The word naturopath is not the same as a naturopathic doctor, 
right? Naturopath is a word that I can call myself. I'm a registered holistic nutritionist. I could call myself a naturopath the same way that somebody who does a one-week online course could call themselves a naturopath. There's not really much regulation on it legally. Okay. You can be a snake oil salesman, and a lot of them are, and say you're a naturopath. And so this is a problem is a lot of people know of or have heard of somebody they know who went to a naturopath or whatever, and it was bogus. And so they think, oh, yeah, that's all BS, right? But they don't maybe understand naturopathic doctors are actually doctors. They actually go through, get an undergraduate and go through a master's program. They have eight years of schooling and they are doctors, but it's not part of the medical system, right? So they need to charge. So there's a little bit of bias. There's a little bit of maybe public misunderstanding generally on what a naturopathic doctor is. There's a lot of pseudoscience in naturopathic medicine, right? There's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. There's things like, well, here's one that could offend some people, but probably not that many people because it's kind of fringe, homeopathy, right? Homeopathy is like a naturopathic practice that is, it's very strange to me. Like it's, they, they basically are claiming that they've got these little, little pills, these bottles of these tiny little like bead pills that have like a fraction of an essence of a herb or some nutrient and you take that and it's like some sort of like essence or energy is like infused and heals you there's not even anything remotely close to a clinically sufficient dosage in homeopathy for it to work or make sense but it's a real going thing and people spend money on it and you can go into a lot of like naturopathic supplement stores and you'll have a section on homeopathy and you can buy those supplements and that kind of stuff doesn't really play well into the field, right? There's people that do Reiki healing, right? Energy healing with their hands saying that I put my hands over you and I draw symbols on you and I'm healing you with this. That's, yeah, right? Is that a proven thing? But that's tied in, right? So the, so the naturopathic side of it is, is really mixed in with hard science and pseudoscience. And that does devalue it, right? I've even, I've seen, uh, I'm not going to say who he is, but a naturopathic doctor in this area who does some pretty hokey stuff like that. Like he has this thing where he attaches electrodes to your head and claims that it gives you readouts about all sorts of things, your mood, your, your nutrient counts, and your neurotransmitter levels. And mm-hmm. it's like a back to the future machine with lights and it's yeah. like, what, what is that, right? <laughs> is that proven by anything? Where's the scientific data? Right. What is it actually yeah. doing? I know like there's EEG tests, electroencephalograph tests that you can do and that's like real brainwave scan tests, right? But then there's other lesser forms of that of people trying to sell some hokey thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. What we need to see really is more like preventive naturopathic medicine getting into the limelight, people using it more, but people can't afford it. So really, I, like the answer would be that it needs to be accepted in with MDs and it needs to be covered by MSP premiums and by our healthcare system. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this, if you were 
if you had to make a nutrition course in high school, what would it look like? And if you were the teacher, how would you teach it? Yeah, I would definitely start off with the basics. So I would make it really fundamental from the ground level up. Well, mm -hmm. I suppose you could either start with the human body or you could start with the nutrients. I think it might be beneficial to start with the nutrients. So like you design a course that goes through water, types of water, what's in water, what's the best type of water to drink, how do you, uh, you cleanse water, filter water, carbohydrates, same thing, different types of sugars, different types of starches, fibers, and you break through. You, go, you could look through every amino acid that the human body uses. What does each one do? What does L-arginine do? What does L-citrulline do, right? What does L-glycine do? These are things that most people don't have any idea, right? And you don't necessarily need to know, but that kind of stuff wouldn't be that difficult to learn. Like it's just some cliff notes on like phenylalanine and, and dopamine and serotonin, right? Like it's just talking about some, mm -hmm. some simple stuff. Uh, same with fats. I mean, you got your omega-3, 6, and 9, right? You've got saturated and unsaturated fats. You could just cover that whole basis. Go through the minerals. What are the major minerals, right? Calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, sulfur, uh, sodium, potassium, and chloride. Those are the major minerals. And then you've also got, you know, the zinc and the copper and, the, you know, the other ones that we know that we need, selenium, the other, you know, going down iron into trace minerals. And just what does each one do? That's it. We could start there, right? Just a fundamental level. What does B1? What does it do? Why does the body need it? Why does the body need vitamin C? Teach everybody that groundwork. That's the fundamentals, right? What are the nutrients? What makes the human body? What makes it function, right? And then we can start looking at how does the human body work, right? An anatomy and physiology course, looking through the body systems, right? How does the digestive system function from the start to the end, right? It starts with the mechanical action of chewing, which secretes both amylase from the amylase glands in the mouth, also signals to secrete hydrochloric acid. So that's the start of it. Then boom, you've got the mechanical and the chemical digestion in the stomach, goes down into the small intestine, brush border enzymes through the duodenum, ileum, cecum, all that. You know, you've got the, the gallbladder, the liver, the, the colon, right? The whole works. How does the spleen fit in, right? What does the spleen do? What does the pancreas do? It secretes enzymes, insulin, amylase, protease, lipase, right? Yeah. So, so just how does the body work? What is the endocrine system? What glands make up the endocrine system? Like I said, right, the hypothalamus, the thymoid, thymus, thyroid, mm -hmm. pineal gland, adrenals, right? You just look through all that, the skeletal muscular system, what is, what is the nervous system? That, that, that's all it would really take. Like you could make a one-year course, you could just make it mandatory in grade 10 or something, and literally in one year easily cover more than enough to give everybody like this wicked baseline that would make everybody so much better off than they are. Yeah. People only know what they see on, on TV and stuff. Like people for a long time thought calcium was the be-all end-all because of milk lobbying, right? Commercials for milk and all this, get your calcium, get your calcium. Yeah, calcium's important. You know what else you need to digest calcium? You need D3, you need K2, you need magnesium, you need phosphorus. Phosphorus is easy to get. Most people have too much phosphorus, but yeah, it's, you know, magnesium is arguably the most important mineral 
in the modern world. It's the one that most people are estimated to be deficient in. It has, I think, more functions than any other minerals are identified as having. It has like 600 functions identified. Zinc has a lot too. Zinc has two or 300 functions identified. It's very active in the immune system and the reproductive system. You know, these, these minerals, they do a lot of things and people don't even know. It, it would be really simple, right? Are you having, uh, what's your condition, right? What's your symptom? If you had this baseline knowledge of what nutrients do, it would be really simple to look like, what's your symptom? Because that's what I do, right? That's what, that's what a holistic nutritionist does, is we, we sit down and we look at you, your, your lifestyle, how you eat, how you sleep, how you live, how much you exercise, what you drink, what type of water you drink, all that, and then symptoms. And we look at, okay, how would you say this is? How would you say this is, right? And it's, okay. it's, there's like seven pages of it, right? And so we look at that and then we find out, okay, these are the body systems most affected. How do those body systems work? Then we just, it just goes into the framework, right? It's what is the baseline that we know, right? You could branch it out more, study, study more in depth about how the immune system works, the lymphatic system, right? And you, we could sort of break it down and you could spend a ton of time in each system and you could branch into special supplements and things like that. There's so much emerging research that, you know, into things like anti-aging and whatnot that are really riveting that we're not really seeing in any sort of mainstream centric uh, view, right? Like mitochondria, everybody know, yeah, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. That's all anybody knows about the mitochondria. People don't know that mitochondria is essentially your mitochondria and your gut biome are the two most important things to living a healthy, full life. Those two things, they're actually finding more and more with research with mitochondria that more and more diseases and conditions are related to mitochondrial dysfunction to the point where it's a great majority of things that are wrong or can happen uh, to a human that are negative are related to mitochondrial deficiency, right? But people don't really know how do you, how do you have healthy mitochondria? How do you make healthy mitochondria? How do you damage your mitochondria? So how do you avoid damaging your mitochondria, right? I see. So yeah. what, is your, what is your theory on why school doesn't teach uh, finance and nutrition? Because you mentioned those are two of the main, main things that we should, we should know. Yeah, I mean, well, to be straight up, I mean, I would say the only reason that really makes sense to me is because they don't want to produce intelligent members of society. They want to produce workers who just shut up and work for a company and do the job and don't think and are consumers. That's what it seems to me, because if you wanted to make a powerful society, you would 1,000% include those. And I think any, any person with common sense can see that, right? I've never talked to anybody who has a different view on the ground level of people yeah. living day to day. Yeah. Everybody thinks that, yet it's not that way. So it seems to mm -hmm. me that there might be some corruption there. There might be an ulterior motive about what they actually want to achieve with school, right? Mm -hmm. That it's not actually meant to make you intelligent. I began to notice, and I'm speaking from my school and schools around my school, mm. um, that the gap between, like the education gap between high school and university has gotten much bigger over the years. Really? Um, the, what they teach us, let's, uh, I don't know, like in a subject in, let's say, grade 12 would be completely different and university would be way, way harder in that subject. So could wow. that be something that 
maybe they want to create that gap so people don't, you know, uh, let's say go to university, educate themselves like a lot on that one subject, and then from high school become workers that you know we can't lie. We all we all need. So, yeah, we need some. <laughs> so maybe it's interesting too uh, because university itself has expanded so much, right, in the past couple decades to the point where you can study like anything you want to. There's so many more subjects. When academia started, there was only a handful of subjects that it was meant for, right? Core engineering, law, medicine, things like that, mm -hmm. maybe psychology. And it's branched out to the point where there is a lot of useless degrees, right? Almost useless degrees. Yeah. <laughs> to varying people, a lot of them are considered useless. The vast majority to most people are considered useless, except a, a check in the box that you got a degree. That's yeah. more what it's becoming about now. Something that I find incredulous is, say, to become an officer in the Canadian military, you only need a bachelor's degree. So I knew a fellow who was an infantry officer because he got a degree in the German language and he couldn't even speak or write or read German. How is he any more qualified than anybody else without a degree to be an officer and lead soldiers in battle because he studied a language he doesn't even know? Yeah. How does it make sense? So that speaks to a bigger issue that I see in the education system of a lot of rote learning, right? Read and regurgitate and then forget and move on. You passed your midterm, you passed your final, forget it, throw away the textbook, get rid of it, never think about it again. I mean, there is a lot of good information in university, and I mean, damn, if you had an elephant brain and you could remember all of it, you could come out if you pick the right courses and have good professors. There's a lot of variance there, of course. You could end up, you know, being incredibly well-educated, but most people don't really do that. They're really just kind of looking for the GPA, and they're... Maybe a lot of that is, I mean, my wife's a student right now, and I see through her, she puts a lot of effort in. She works two jobs as well, and uh, so it's, it's a big hustle, and she's definitely putting in the effort, but to some extent, it's, it's almost too much on the plate. So to some extent, everybody's just doing that because everybody's burnt out. Mm -hmm. So that there's only so much the sponge that is the brain can absorb, right? And you're doing multiple courses a semester, like it ends up getting too much, right? You have too many things going at once and your brain literally cannot remember that much information. So to some extent, it's almost just, it's almost just like that because it's, it's done so rapid rate, right? I see. It's just crammed so much. And yeah, it does seem like university really ramps up from, from high school. You look at K to 12, and it doesn't really move up that much. It kind of is like incredibly gradual. And then you go from university, you look at any program, first year to second year, third year, fourth year, it gets incrementally harder at each interval. 200 level courses are way harder than 100. 300 level, way harder than 200. Every single year, it just ramps up. It doesn't do that in grade eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. It's no. much more gradual. I mean, I think about, okay, so I was like a little bit of a high school dropout, right? As I said, I had a kind of a rough time. Mm -hmm. um, but so like for me, I, so, so I'm not the average person because I kind of did the bare minimum to graduate. But up until grade seven, I was a good kid. I got really good grades and, every, uh, grades and everything. And I, I think about this in terms of like, 
I didn't really learn anything new in school in the years of high school. I learned a lot autodidactically at home. The nutrition stuff is a big part of, a, a big uh, sect of that, right? Reading my own stuff, but like, what did I actually learn in school? Like, the level of math competency I was at in grade seven, the level of reading comprehension I was at in grade seven before I kind of fell off the path, that, that was like pretty high actually. And then it didn't really get much higher. It kind of felt like it fell off the wagon a little bit. I fell off the wagon too, so that's why I'm saying I'm not the best example to speak yeah, yeah. on it because I, I didn't do AP mean. classes and all that, and I didn't. I wasn't one of the you know honors kids. But yeah, obviously, like pre-calculus is a lot harder than grade seven math, right? I didn't do pre-calculus. Obviously, if you do AP classes and that, it can get complicated. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah no, I don't seem, know. Especially high school, it seemed much more lenient on on education i mean i I suppose you'd have to look too at uh the averages of grades right so i I mean i've seen in what is it oregon recently i believe they got rid of uh math and uh, english literacy requirements to graduate yeah i've I've seen that so from what i've seen that's because a lot more people are failing so if they didn't do that a lot more people wouldn't graduate and would fail so are people getting stupider? Probably not really. Or are people just getting, having less uh, maybe motivation, more mental aberrations, more depression, anxiety, throwing them off, making it hard to focus, uh, more attention issues because of you know tanked dopamine reward pathways. So unable to sort of focus and commit to things, too much social media, things like that. Is it just that? Or maybe people are getting dumber. Maybe the toxic burden, and maybe it's a bit of everything, right? Toxic burden is growing and people's cognitive pathways are shrinking. I mean, we can see statistically that with testosterone rates and sperm counts in men, they have tanked in the last hundred years. Tanked. Our grandfathers had like triple the amount of testosterone, triple the sperm counts that we have right now. And all that's changed is our exposure. We have the same genes, right? We are the offspring. The only thing that's changed is what we've been exposed to, what what our parents were exposed to, right? So it's that toxic burden is growing, right? And it's at a point where it is huge, right? And that could be, some people link it to food, Um, the unhealthy food that we're eating. Some people link it to... It's definitely a lot of food, yeah. yeah. It's definitely a lot of food. Water is a simple one. Yeah, you wanted to talk more about water. I mean, yeah, we're like 60% water, right? And how many people do filter their water? You know, I filter my water, but I even, I only have a carbon block filter, a Brita right now. Carbon block is okay. Carbon block filters get out a lot of contaminants. The main thing that I'm worried about is chlorine. So I'm getting the chlorine out with the carbon block, right? That's with our water around here, which is really good. Obviously, it's a lot better than Flint, Michigan. But tap water, if you test it, it's going to be different in every jurisdiction. And even within jurisdictions, it's going to be different out of each tap because it depends on what pipes go to each sink, right? There's still a lot of lead piping. A lot of people are getting more lead in their water than others that don't have lead piping, right? Or other whatever else is going on right yeah so it's going to be different everywhere it's a randomized vector of woods a mystery box what's in your tap water but you know you can't take that risk you should be filtering it what's the best way to filter it mm, reverse osmosis and then carbon block filtered i think double filtered yeah I've carbon seen... blocks were good but 
I've seen I've seen videos of of, of of people putting like a camera down the pipes yeah. and seeing how how ugly the pipes look and how old they are from the inside and everything. Mm. Um, so I don't know. They're saying that might play a role in yeah in, yeah in some of the stuff. Especially we, if that water is already acidic as it's going through the pipes, then that acidic water is going to peel more of whatever corroded materials on the pipes and pull it off into the water, right? Yeah. Distilled water is interesting because when you distill water, it is perfectly cleaned but it becomes soft water so the problem is water is supposed to have some concentration of minerals in it there's there's considered soft water and hard water and that's really just dependent on the concentration of minerals in the water hard water has a lot of minerals soft water has none right distilled water is soft and so the issue when you drink that is it'll actually leach minerals out of your tissues because it's you've got this because, this right. liquid concentration in your blood and in your tissue, so it's got to balance it. Yeah. Right. This is low, so it's going to pull out here to make everything even. Same thing can happen with hard water in reverse. You can have too much uh, de de depositing of like calcium and whatever minerals are in that hard water. Too much like these inorganic calcium salts and that into tissues, and they can cause issues in various joints, right, and things like that. Maybe calcium causing gout or whatever. It's going to depend on the material, but yeah. So like. Perfect water, it's actually a tough, tough question. I guess it would be distilled and then re-adding the proper amount of minerals and alkalizing it, making sure that the water itself is at the uh, like 7.1 ideal optimized alkalinity for the human body because then you're drinking fluids that are, that are already alkalized to what your blood wants to be, right? So that's an important one. If you're drinking acidic water, then that's going to be an issue, right? Yeah, we bought this little, um, I forgot what the device is called. Basically, you put it into the water and it shows you how many minerals are in the water. Oh, interesting. So we've been testing our tap. So it's, we don't know what the minerals are. Mm. So when, when, let's say, it comes up with 20. So there's, there's, there's a scale. I'm pretty sure from like 0 to 50 is good. 50 to 100 is fine. Um, and then anything above 200 is bad. Like mm, pollute, okay. that's polluted water. Okay. Um, but then again, when you test it, you don't know. You don't know what minerals are in the water. They could be good minerals. They could be bad minerals. Right. But, yeah, so we've, so we've been testing the water. Uh, we've tested different types of water. We've tested water from our tap, which is about 40. Uh, we tested water from, uh, like, wells, from, like, the mountain. Um, it's also about 40. Mm. And, and, yeah, so we've been testing different kind of water, and it's kind of cool to see how many minerals are Interesting. in the kind of water, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, water is, water is a critical one, but I don't think you need to go too crazy. Like, if you could get a reverse osmosis machine, that's good. Berkey's are really good water filters. I think if you have nothing else, like a carbon block filter, solid or granulized, they're both fine because they're at least getting rid of the chlorine and, and a couple other contaminants. They don't get rid of everything, but I believe these even, uh, carbon block filters also get rid of lead and that. So, I mean, for me, chlorine and lead is, is a big step. Unfortunately, I mean, you can be the biggest hypochondriac in the world and you can try to do everything possible. You can pull out every stop. You can spend millions of dollars a year like that, whatever his name, Brian Johnson or so, I forget his name. The guy who spends multi-millions of dollars a year to try to stay young forever, oh, right? You yes, can do I've that, that. Yeah, yeah. but you're not going to win, right? You're not going to win because there's too many toxins that we're exposed to. We can't get away from them. 
driving on the roads, I mean, they're coming in the vents in your car and you're breathing exhaust fumes from vehicles, right? You're, that's exactly. inhaled pollutants there and whatever's on your skin, lotions and... I digress, sunscreens have a lot of bad chemicals. Some people are vehemently pro-sunscreen. I'm pretty against it. <laughs> you know, it's... There's a lot of things, right? Yeah. Down to... An interesting thing to look at, for example, with cleaning products and things like that is xenoestrogens. So everybody thinks about estrogens like soy estrogens. That's a big thing that people talk about. Like, does soy make you more estrogenic? So soy estrogens are called phytoestrogens. Phyto is like plant, right? Okay. And so it's really interesting. I'm not like super pro soy. I'm kind of in the middle. I, don't, I haven't really picked a side yet. And the reason I haven't really picked a side yet is because research really doesn't show that phytoestrogens and soy mess too much with the hormonal structure of men. Like the phytoestrogens are fairly similar to like normal estrogens, so your body can get rid of them fairly easily. And there's just no conclusive evidence that people who eat a ton of soy have lower testosterone. I mean, I do know quite a few vegans. I'm not a full proponent of the vegan diet because there's a couple nutrients that are very, very difficult to get on a vegan diet, mm -hmm. like choline, B12, sulfur-containing amino acids like L-methionine, omega-3, right? Eggs cover most of it, funny enough. If you're a vegan who eats eggs, that covers like pretty much everything that you might need. Good so if you yeah. eat like, you know, good harvested eggs, that's actually my wife is a vegan and I convinced her again to eat eggs as long as they're from a good source, right. uh, you know, and so that does cover most of that. Um, but yeah, you're just, you're never going to get away from it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I guess I guess I guess you have to pick and choose which ones you are willing to. Yeah, you need to, to. you need to do as much as you can, right? But at, at, to some level, you can't really worry about it too much because this is the world that we're born into. Yeah. Right. And so, to some degree, you need to not you know let yourself stay up at night thinking about it and thinking about all that. Just do what you can and do your best and forget the rest, right? Hmm. But you know, a big a big thing would be yeah, you know. Purify your water and take a multi-mineral supplement, right? Mm -hmm. Eat less sugar. Yeah. <laughs> More probiotics. Interesting. Whole foods. Whole foods is, is hard, though, because fruits and vegetables that we get, they're all sprayed, right? There's organic doesn't necessarily mean organic, the legality of it. It's like foods can be mostly organic, but they can still have pesticides in them and be labeled as organic. It just depends on the stage of their production that they spray pesticides. Or they can have exposure from other neighboring fields that aren't organic. And so they can just have contamination that way. And maybe they were organic, but they're still contaminated because of a neighboring field. Like yeah. if you go to Kelowna, for example, all the orchards in Kelowna, there's a lot of fruit from there that's considered to be organic, this, organic, that, but it's sprayed liberally. Giant spraying trucks that go down the road and just spray out in both directions and just cover everything, right? That gets again into the water, into the soil. It seeps around. It'll carry in the wind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, seen, I've, I've seen a video of this guy um, in some other country. He was... He was, I don't know what he was growing. He was growing some, some sort of food. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what it was. But he was spraying his food with Coca-Cola because it keeps all the bugs and all the rabbits or rodents or whatever away. Right. 
Okay. The, yeah. 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 So. Coca Cola is an interesting one for sure. I've seen a lot of cleaning solutions with Coca Cola. Oh yeah. Uh, one interesting point about pops, actually, and Coke's a good example, is so people always think about the sugar. That's, of course, important to think about, the high sugar content. But phos phosphoric acid is also a big concern, right? Coke, for example, has lots and lots of phosphoric acid, so it's, it's phosphorus. But it's in this form, phosphoric acid, in this the quantity that when you, say, drink a pop, there's enough, like one can of Coca-Cola, there's enough phosphoric acid in that, that it will leach calcium out of your bones. So if you drink a lot of soda, it's not an issue if you have a soda once in a while, if you, if you get a lot of good minerals and overall your diet's good, but it adds quite a bit. Soft drinks add quite a bit to the demineralization of the bone if you drink them a lot because of the content huh. of phosphoric acid, right? So that's another thing that, you know, I would actually say like, I love sugar, but I don't drink soft drinks, right? I have a hard time stopping sugar. I, I fast a lot to get around it so I can kill my candida and whatnot. To go into ketosis sometimes. Allows me to justify eating a lot of sugar sometimes. But sodas are pretty much out. I'll have them maybe like once or twice a year, but like they're just yeah. forbidden, right? Yeah. Certain things. Fried foods, of course, uh, can, can have issues, but an interesting thing uh, with fried foods is if you take vitamin C with it, uh, you'll, you'll nullify a lot of the negative inflammation effects that you get from fried foods. So like, think like McDonald's fries, for example. Okay. Those have a lot of uh, uh, like acrylamide. It's like a type of toxin that's produced from the deep frying effect. But ascorbic acid, vitamin C, will uh, negate the damage of it. So if you have high vitamin C or you take a vitamin C supplement when you eat some fries or whatever, then I can actually really help to mitigate that inflammation and the negative effects of it. It's still, you know, you're still going to get the rancid fried fats and they're really not good for you, but <laughs> yeah. I see. Interesting. Well, uh, I, I, sorry, I just got to run here in a bit. So mm -hmm. we'll, uh, yeah. We had a <laughs> it was just a really interesting conversation. Honestly, I thought, I thought I knew more about nutrition than I actually did. It's deep. So it, it really is. Yeah. And it, it'd be awesome if, if at any time we could do like a part two where we take a specific, a specific yeah. topic. Because yeah. I, I, I didn't know it was going to be this broad. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like I said, it's like there, there's a lot of things I had to stop myself from branching into that we could still discuss. We didn't talk about uh, PEDs at all, performance enhancing drugs. We didn't talk about any special supplements. We didn't really get in depth about fasting or ketosis. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Awesome. And then... The last question I ask every guest is, what is their favorite book or favorite podcast that might have helped you or mm. the one they like reading That's a good or question. listening to? Yeah, a favorite book. Hmm. I would, I suppose, one book is called The Fundamentals of Nutrition by Elson M. Haas. He's a German, I believe, doctor, maybe Dutch, something like that. Mm -hmm. But The Fundamentals of Nutrition, it was one of the textbooks in the, uh, the program that I did uh, the, at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition is where I got my, my diploma okay. to be a registered holistic nutritionist. And yeah, one of the textbooks we had really, really struck out to me. It was that one, Fundamentals of Nutrition, because of just that. And, and it's a lot of what I talked about here, actually. Because I, I really took it as a basis of uh, my, my approach is... It starts out chapter one is water, and it's all about water, right? Chapter two 
is carbohydrates. Oh, Chapter three is fats. Yeah. Chapter four is protein. It does exactly what I said, right? What I said about a high school course. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be that book. That book would be the textbook for that course that I think should be in high school at a fundamental level. Interesting. And it'll go through, and it's a massive book. I have it, if you would like to see it, actually. I have a paper sure. copy. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes greatly in depth. Yeah, get one second. Oh. Ah, oh, my bad. It is called Staying Healthy with Nutrition. Elson oh, wow. so M. Haas, like yeah. Textbook book. Yeah, it's a total Bible. Uh, and it, it goes much more in depth about a lot more than just the nutrients, but the way that it lays out all known research for all the amino acids, all the minerals, oh, all the awesome. vitamins and all that. So it gives you this total breakdown of why do we need them? Where do you get them? What different forms exist? What complications is there? What are the dosages? It's very comprehensive. And to give a baseline understanding, I would highly recommend this book, at least those first six, seven chapters, just to get that fundamental overview of what we actually need. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, yeah. <laughs> It's a very big book, but <laughs> yeah. But it definitely, I just flipped through. I just flipped through some of the pages, and I stopped yeah. out. There's a protein it's, intake for how old you have to be to take that. Yeah, much it'll or, tell you if you're an infant, if you're pregnant, cool. breastfeeding. When was male, this book written? Because uh, new studies yeah. come out every. That, yeah, this might not be the newest edition, 21st century edition. No, I think it's a little bit older. No, I'm not sure. Mm. 2006. Yeah, so there's definitely new information to go in now, but it's still a lot of the good fundamentals. Oh, yeah. uh, podcast is tough, actually. I don't, I don't listen to too, too many. I listen to a lot of audibles. Hmm. Um, what are some most re recent ones? I need to get my phone to find out what it's called, actually. Okay. <laughs> there, there's one that I highly recommend. Yeah. Uh, it's all about mitochondria, and it'll, it'll go into great depth about what I briefly mentioned about mitochondria, and this, this Audible is really where I uh, figured out uh, what, like how important it is, right? Yeah, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine by Lee No. Highly recommend that. One yeah. point uh, from that book that, that I'll mention here briefly is so uh, with, with eating, going back to just the whole holistic approach to eating, right? I'll, I'll try to make this quick. But one of the most damaging things we can do to the mitochondria is overeating, right? So there's something in the uh, mitochondria called the electron transfer chain, and you can essentially think of it like railroad tracks. Okay. And so the electrons in the food that you eat, food has a lot of electrons, so when you overeat, you give your body a ton of electrons. Those electrons load onto this electron transfer chain at the mitochondria, and when it gets overloaded, essentially they collide and they derail. And when they derail, it causes inflammation at the site of the mitochondria, which is danger close. And mitochondria at the site don't have antioxidants or any way to mitigate that inflammatory oxidative response, that damage. So overeating, Giving your body too many electrons is the number one way that you actually damage your mitochondria. <laughs> so you should never in one sitting overeat to the point that you feel like super stuffed. That's a major reason why. And you should also just in a day not eat so many small meals that you overeat, right? Eat a few big ones. 
Yeah, so with these uh, with these blue zones, just to tie it there, so like I said, they would eat two meals a day, yep. but they would also be slightly, when they calculated them, they would be slightly caloric deficient, but very nutrient rich, right? So that's an interesting point to, point to mention. Okay. A lot of people have a very nutrient void diet that's calorie rich. That's a very common thing with our processed refined foods, high sugar, super high calories in the Western average standard American diet, super high caloric intake, very low nutrient density intake, right? So you actually want to be in a slight caloric deficit, but still getting the ratios of all of the essential fatty acids, the amino acids, everything that you need a day, right? That's, that's a tricky thing to do. Mm -hmm. But essentially for your mitochondria, that is gonna be the number one thing is making sure that you don't overload that electron transfer chain. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I appreciate you coming on. It's, mm. it's, appreciate it's been you an honor me, yeah. and we'll for sure have to make a part two and dig down deep into some of the topics that we yeah. covered briefly yeah, today. Yeah, that could be good. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been thank a pleasure. Thank you, it was, yeah. Thank you.